Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where two academics listen to content or read content from the greatest minds the world has to offer, and we try to understand what on earth they're talking about. I'm Professor Matt Brown, I'm a psychologist from Australia, and with me is Dr. Chris Kavanagh. He's a cognitive anthropologist from some obscure place in the British Isles, and as we're both fully credentialed gatekeepers of the institutional narrative, we are ready to get to the bottom of whatever shit is going down in our interconnected online world culture. Does that sound about right, Chris? That sounds very good. So the the world of conspiracy theorists and pseudoscientists and secular gurus is expanding in the internet era. And we have found a, a kind of corner that's interesting and potentially untapped to look at from a critical perspective. So hopefully we have some interesting things to say and can connect it to the pre-existing well-trodden paths of conspiracy theorists and various types of gurus. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting connections there. A lot of good stuff to unpack. So we'll see how we go. Hopefully interesting. I'm sure we'll, it'll be hit and miss sometimes, especially at the beginning. But we'll have some fun. So I guess the first thing we should do is introduce ourselves. So do, do you want to go first, Chris? Sure. So like you said, I'm in academia. I'm a cognitive anthropologist. But I actually teach in a psychology department. So I kind of moonlight as a psychologist on the border of anthropology, all very academic and uninteresting. But the relevance for this podcast is that basically I've had a long-standing interest, not just academically, but personal interest in conspiracy theorists and pseudoscience communities, alternative health communities. And like I said, the internet has led the blossoming of these spaces with a whole spectrum of people from your Alex Joneses to Jordan Peterson to uh, even mainstream figures. And with as the president, it's become ever more mainstream. I think that the, our background could contribute to saying something interesting about this phenomenon. Maybe not in the elegant way that I've just done it now, but hopefully <laughs> some, some, some better expressed things as we get more used to it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think you're right. A lot of things are coming together right now with that, um, with the internet and the various sources of media. The uh, traditional religions and traditional belief systems, I guess, sources of authority are kind of breaking down a little bit and you have these alternative things arising. So it's a rich environment, maybe a target-rich environment as well. So um, we should have some fun. So about me, a psychologist uh, from Australia, I uh, mainly do research now and so my background sort of interconnects with yours in, in some ways as well. Um, my main area is in addiction and public health um, and behaviours that contribute to that. Uh, I've had a long-standing interest in paranormal beliefs, religious beliefs, and also conspiracy ideation. So it sort of all goes back to the fundamental goal of psychology, which is to understand why people are so crazy. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons people can be a bit crazy is that they believe all kinds of interesting things and... We're social animals and we um, develop those beliefs in cooperation with other people. So, so it's really interesting to focus on, it's not so much the psychology bit, the sort of sociology of it, I suppose, which is the, the, the way these ideas spread and what ideas are appealing and whether or not they're connected to reality. 
So, yeah. yeah. Um, and I also, following on from your introduction, Matt, I should probably mention that, that I have a slight accent. That no, is no, 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 Chris. No, that's not. No. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure nobody had picked up on it till now. But I'm. I might have mentioned that I'm also from Northern Ireland, and I have lived outside for a while. And now living in Japan, so my accent is a little bit strange. But it's mostly Belfast influenced in Northern Ireland. And yeah. Uh, so what you're saying is, although we're two white guys, we're very diverse. It's That's right. There's, there's an untapped market for white academics talking about niche topics in podcasts. This is a, you know, a rich vein that nobody has fought to exploit. So it's well, good that we, sh- we got there first. <laughs> well, I'm sure the Australian Northern Ireland connection is an untapped vein. Of, yeah. of course. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, maybe with the, po- <laughs> the possible exception of like Aussie rules football and Gaelic football crossovers, but that's, that is not what this wow. podcast is about. And no, well, they, they don't have a podcast. They, that's the they, thing. They, they don't. Maybe <laughs> we'll end up getting into that when we exhaust topics. But the, uh, the, <laughs> the other point that I realized I probably should mention in an introduction is that my main field is the cognitive science of religion. So, in my actual research, I focus heavily on religion and particular ritual psychology. So the conspiracy theorist area is a, a side interest in my research, but it actually, you know, in many ways relates in with religious belief and this kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I may have mentioned what my main academic speciality is. So, yeah, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, and, and you reminded me also another sort of thing which we have in common, which is related directly to the topic of this podcast, which is that cognitive aspect, um, you know, um, the various um, heuristics and biases and cognitive fallacies and so on. Basically, those those mechanisms of reasoning that you know us human beings try to try to do. Uh, but of course, we're not we're not computers, and we're very very fallible. All of us. So it's just endlessly fascinating. All of the little quirks and mistakes or errors that, that, that we all make, but also in, in communication and language in how people, um, especially gurus, how they convey ideas. There are various tricks, of course, that can convey uh, a sense of truthiness, uh, sometimes called deepities, yeah, which, which we'll hopefully get into as well. Yeah, and uh, I think both of us, uh, we've talked, you know, off the podcast about this, that we... We don't think that this is the the kind of things that we're going to be talking about require you to be an academic to know this or to to pick up. But rather, academia does put an emphasis on critically evaluating and stuff, but there's plenty of academics who, who don't, and there's plenty of non-academics who are very critical when they're assessing things. So the... The techniques that people use in order to make themselves sound more convincing and authoritative, we, we know a thing or two about them from our research and academic backgrounds, but the things that we're talking about are not stuff that anybody, you, that you need to be an academic to find out about or to consider. And everybody has their biases. Nobody's immune to them, including us. So this isn't an attempt to say that what everyone else gets wrong except us. Except, of course, that we are perfectly correct and everyone else is wrong. That's the only, the only <laughs> point to make there. Yes, yes. Well, so we, we should get into the, the podcast itself, I guess, to talk about, mm. um, about what we're doing. Um, so it's called 
Decoding the Gurus, unless we change, change our minds and change the name. But for the time being, Decoding the Gurus. So, yeah, so we're talking about gurus. We're not talking about all kinds of gurus, right? We're not talking about, it's, maybe we will end up doing this, but at, at least at the start, we're interested in not the religious gurus or uh, alternative medicine, the more spiritual side of the spectrum when it comes to gurus. Our interest has been piqued by the people that operate in this kind of hinterland that we've discussed as kind of secular gurus where they might invoke religion or tra various traditions, existing traditions, but they're, they're very much offering wisdom and meaning systems for people that don't fall into those traditional categories of people like religious believers or uh, like mm. spiritual seekers, but maybe they all would wise would. So, so yeah, like figures like Jordan Peterson or uh, Eric yeah. Weinstein, like we'll talk today. Or but Ste yeah, yeah, Stefan Molnier. Um, well, no, I don't know how to pronounce it. How, how do you say his last name? It, no, you got to write this right, Stefan Molnier. Oh, oh, good. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so, so these people, as you said, like they're, they're not religious. They're, they're not sort of spiritual people like Deepak Chopra. And I guess the only reason we're avoiding those guys in the first instance is they're they're almost an. It's almost like shooting ducks in a barrel to talk about what's going on with Deepak Chopra, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and I think another thing is that the the kind of skeptical community in general tends to not have an issue with pointing out the problems with figures like Deepak Chopra or the like food babe or you know whatever. These these kind of people do attract uh, critical attention, but when it veers more into politics or social commentary either there's political based critiques usually from uh, the farther left side which which can be very critical of many of the people that we're talking about but but aside from that there doesn't tend to be that much engagement from some from groups like the skeptical community or atheists or that and in actual fact they're often argued to be the the kind of pipeline that feeds the the majority of the people that we're interested in. Um, although one point to make is that we're not only focusing on like figures that lean more to the right or within the intellectual dark web. The uh, we're interested basically in anybody, including people from the the left wing side that are offering these kind of grand narratives that and and presenting themselves as kind of guru figures. So. Maybe in later weeks, we'll, we'll address people from across the political spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing to say too is that we're, we're not really interested in taking people on in, term, in any terms of um, like some sort of political disagreement or say, oh, you know, this, this type of talk violates our, our own personal political opinions or something Are like that. Are you saying that. you're not going to cancel anybody, Matt? That's not your <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to call. We're not going to call people out for various things either. Well, uh, well, hopefully. We, we, well, we might call people out, but I don't think we're going to call for them to be cancelled or uh, like deplatformed or. No, yeah. no. Well, look, where, where I was going with that is that I guess, um, like, our, our intent, I think, with this is is not to take take shots at people just for the sake of it. Although that's obviously a lot of fun, um, we, 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 I mean, uh, what we hope to do, I think, is 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 break down some of this uh, content 
and and hopefully use it as a bit of an illustrative example to kind of understand the, the, the kinds of things you have to watch out for if you want to be a critical consumer of of this kind of content. And, you know, there's lots of great content out there. A lot of the people will cover cover a lot of interesting topics. And I think I think their audiences are attracted to them because they do cut um, you know, dig deep on on topics that are of interest to people and often stuff that might get neglected by the more mainstream media. So the attraction is real and understandable. So I suppose we could humbly offer people a few <laughs> uh, tips and tricks for critical evaluation of this material. So you can just be a, a smart and informed consumer of content, basically. Um, I'm sorry, Matt, this is not what I signed up for. I want to destroy <laughs> people, ruin their careers and financially bankrupt them. That's my motivation. Well, <laughs> it's pure vendetta that motivates everything I do. Uh, no, yeah. I... I you're, well, you're a, you're a, a, a hydrocris. I know that. I know yeah. That. <laughs> so, so people seem to think, but actually, like, just to be clear, that's sarcasm. That, like, I know that sometimes that doesn't travel that well. But the, it's unfortunately the default mode in in Northern Ireland. But I think that in many of the occasions, although we, I might fundamentally disagree with some of the people that we talk about, or or think that they are advancing messages that you know aren't great or or have some problems. By and large, that's I don't think that's the issue. It's fine to disagree, and that the the I I I hope and I think we plan to deal with people that we might overall agree with as well. So it isn't necessarily a case that the you know this is just a teardown. Of, of people that we don't like, hopefully. They, there's more to it than that. But yeah, but so maybe we should get into it and see what what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's give it a whirl. Um, I will say one final thing about why you and I are just eminently qualified to do this job, which <laughs> is that um, like a lot of these people get criticized a lot from certain sources, basically from people who are diametrically opposed to them just fundamentally in terms of their politics and so on. And they get criticized in the most overblown way mm. a lot of the time too. And, uh, you know, I'm generally not too impressed by the kinds of criticisms that, for instance, have been leveled at Jordan Peterson, for instance. I think a lot of them miss the mark. So I think, you know, having, you know, knowing you reasonably well now, Chris, I, could, I think I can speak for both of us when I say that we're, we're basically politically mo- very moderate like you know in the right, yeah, liberal, left of center. liberal progressive yeah liberal progressive left of center but speaking for myself anyway i'm i'm very milk toast <laughs> i don't have any i don't have any extremely um strong fanatical political opinions um i think i inhabit the hinterland where depending on who is speaking to me i'm either presented as like the champion of wokeness or or uh like a hidden conservative uh pre- pretending to be left wing mm. and uh, but i feel no need to self-identify as a classical liberal uh, so i think that, no, no. that at, <laughs> I, I, at least we we aren't there that's a uh, you know not that there aren't reasonable classical liberals out there i'm sure there are a handful but the um Many yeah. fine people, Chris. Many, many fine people on both sides. So basically, Matt, the point that you thought it's important to mention before is like that we should annoy the, the far left. I, I should annoy the classical liberals and 
maybe we intrinsically just alienate the far right because like uh, yeah the, the uh, yeah. <laughs> we to make clear we're not the far right <laughs> yeah, just that, just that disclaimer is probably useful to <laughs> the kids. <laughs> okay, okay. Hopefully, no one's going to be writing letters to our employers to try yeah, to say that's this. It. So. I'm sure we've we've carved out uh, you know the biggest possible audience uh, of like uh, <laughs> just cancelling out all these segments that that are usually the ones interested in this topic. <laughs> Good. So if you're still listening, um, <laughs> let, uh, we could we could get started. So, um, what's on the menu for today, Chris? We've I see we've decided to start with uh, Brett Weinstein um, and his brother Eric Weinstein and a particular episode of theirs. Yes. So, in no surprise to people, anybody that follows me online, our first topic relates to Brett and Eric Weinstein. Actually, I think and is. I would say one of the masterpieces of the past year or so. So this is episode 19 of The Portal, which is Eric Weinstein podcast. And it's titled Brett Weinstein, The Prediction and The Disc. So just to interrupt, before we get into it and them, yeah. uh, I, I guess just a note on the format we're going to follow for, for, the, for this episode and for, for all of them, I guess, you know, Every one of the every one of the people will cover and talk about. They they produce just massive amounts of content, just reams and reams of content, and it's it's really not possible to to kind of attempt to summarize it all and cover it all in in any kind of way. So I think what we decided is, look, we're just going to take one bit. Um, it, it could be a chapter of a book, it could be an episode of a, a podcast, some some manageable bit of content, and we're going to work through it and um, see, see what they're saying in it and yeah, take a critical look and yeah, give it a critical analysis. So, so I guess I, I think this is a good way to approach these uh, figures and these ideas because um, even though you're taking a limited amount of content, it's often pretty representative of the kind of stuff that's going on in many other episodes and we can always come back and return to particular people that we cover for a second round if they... Um, if they produce something interesting, when to go through? So we have to start somewhere. So we're starting off with we had to pick someone. So Brett and Eric Weinstein, uh, uh, lucky, lucky first off the off the lot. Um, and yeah. um, we'll cover bit, cover this episode. Yeah, and so like just to just to add to that point, the the those podcasts that I listen to, which are you know. For, for example, Knowledge Fight is a podcast that focuses on Alex Jones content week, on, week in and week out. And they they dive very deep on, and he's pushing out content in the manner that you talk about every day. And I think both of us feel that if we were to do that for some of these people that we might go mad um, if, if it became our sole focus just to consume the content. So a kind of pick and mix um, approach is is both mentally more healthy and also I think we can illustrate that there are these parallels across these diverse range of people with you know different goals, different philosophies, but in many respects, a lot of overlaps in the techniques and uh, yeah, and red rhetorical tricks, if you want, yeah. that they use to make their point. So for anybody who doesn't know already, Brett, Weinstein is an evolutionary biologist who came to fame because of being involved with protests uh, at a lesser known 
previously lesser known college called Evergreen in America, where he was a biology teacher. We don't need to get into them in detail, but just to say he he ended up having some conflicts with students who were uh, protesting, I think fair to say, from the social justice end of the spectrum. And eventually he was kind of left his position and, and, and got a settlement from the college. And since then, he's taken up a position within the intellectual dark web, arguing for freedom of speech and against excesses of social justice, the common things in that sphere. And his Eric Weinstein is his brother, who is a mathematician of sorts, but his day job is working as a managing director for Peter Thiel's, one of Peter Thiel's investment firms. And then he also rose to like prominence recently for the intellectual, the rise of the intellectual dark web. And he gave the term, came up with the moniker. As we'll see, he quite likes coming up with various new terminology and acronyms. But uh, he... Previous to that, about uh, eight years before that, had had rose to a little bit of attention by claiming to have produced a unified theory of physics, so a grand theory of everything. And he got some coverage as, is this the next Einstein or 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 is this like a cook? Um, so, uh, yes, that's the, the, the two characters. And Eric has this podcast, The Portal, where he seeks to promote voices that he considers outside or silenced by the mainstream or institutions, be they academic, political, economic, whatever. So his the portal is to introduce people to to these new viewpoints and new thinkers, that outside the box thinkers. And and this episode with Brett was presented as the kind of phase two of the the portal. First phase was him introducing various revolutionary thinkers, but the second one was where he began to attack the institutional suppressive constructs that he sees. So this was the kind of opening for phase two of the disc. So an interesting episode to look at. Um, Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So so, so this suppressive phenomena is called... He calls it the disc, which stands for the uh, distributed uh, idea... Suppression, uh, complex. Complex. Distributed, distributed idea suppression. Idea. Suppression complex. The suppression disc. complex at the disc. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting, isn't it? So Brett's Brett's background is in um, evolutionary biology, mainly involved in teaching at um, Evergreen. Uh, as we will see, yes, um, it ended. Unfortunately, I understand <laughs> that was um, something I did know beforehand about that evergreen crisis, <laughs> which is a whole story in itself, isn't it? And, uh, Eric's background is theoretical physics, in the sense of his did his um, PhD in it. He proposed this idea of geometric unity, a potential unified theory of physics, which is definitely shooting, Stars. shooting. Um, Literally. For the star- yes, yes. He, he, um, he believes the theory might allow us to travel beyond the speed of light. So, yeah, that's... Yep. And yep. colonize the distant world. So, yes, that's 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 great. Although, just to, just because I, I am aware of how fanatical some of the fans can be, his thesis was not on geometric unity. That was like kind of burbling along the background being developed. His thesis was on some obscure part of you know mathematics related to uh i believe related to theoretical physics but uh yeah geometric unity came 
after that. So I see. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That that was that um, uh, talk um, that he that he gave. Yeah, you might have you might have got confused by the gated institutional narrative, the GIN, which is another acronym that uh, the Eric talks about. So all these talks of disks and gins and geometric unities and. Uh, it's this is very much a feature of the man that uh, <laughs> a, a lot of acronyms. Uh, uh, yes, and a lot of acronyms and a lot of complex terminology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, good. Okay, so so that's that's the that's the characters. They've they've um, both got their own podcasts. Brett's got his own podcast, hasn't he, Chris? Yes, Dark Horse. The Dark Horse. Yep, yep. Dark Horse um, and the Portal. <laughs> In the portal, it's, yeah, it's, it gives, it's got a certain feel to it, hasn't it? It's got, it a, does, it's got a vibe. Yeah, I think like retro wave synth band, uh, Dark Horse on the Portal. I, you know, I'd listen to it. I think. <laughs> yeah. I would. I'd listen to it too. Okay, so good. All right, so let's. Um, yeah, so this sounds like a like a watershed type episode. So it's a good it's a good one to start with. I I've listened to it. Um, at, at your bidding, Chris. <laughs> and yeah, it was a wild ride. It was interesting. And we've, 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 taken, we've taken some notes and um, we've got some clips as well. So I guess what we're going to do is we'll, we'll, we'll work through some of the themes that, that they sort of cover, not necessarily in strict chronological order, but sort of thematically yeah. arranged. Yeah. So maybe one thing that would be helpful to do at the start is if I give a kind of steel man synopsis of what this episode was about from their perspective we'll hear it in their own words in the various clips anyway so i won't spend that long but mm-hmm. but just to make clear what the their fans and with what they would probably frame what this episode was about is that brett as a young phd student through his insight into evolutionary theory made a prediction about the nature of telomeres, the kind of the ends of genes and their, their relationship with aging and cancer growth and it, various things that will probably come up later. But uh, anyway, he made some deep theoretical insight and then sought to introduce it to the academic world, publish a paper about it, and he contacted some of the leading figures in the field only to have his revolutionary insight squashed by the distributed idea suppression complex, which which was protecting the gated institutional narratives. His insight was kind of too revolutionary, and as a result, it was suppressed by the various powers that be, including an eventual Nobel laureate. And this episode is the older brother, Eric, convincing Brett that he hasn't taken up his place in history of science and that uh, it's time to rectify that, smash through the disc and let everyone know about his Im- important discovery and maybe mm-hmm. start to set things to right. Mm, right. Good. So is that <laughs> <laughs> um, ed- ed- anything else or just, just ed- that? Is that <laughs> I, I, I mean, is that not enough? They, I, I, <laughs> if I wanted to, I might add that they are... St- at various points in this podcast, claiming that it's Nobel Prize winning insight that was suppressed mm. and that it has implications for health, cancer, drug testing, uh, yep. it, the entire scientific enterprise. So if that's not yeah. enough for you, Matt, 
I, no. <laughs> I, I don't know what's wrong with you. You maybe, a, maybe you needed to listen twice. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's 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 enough for me. I, I, uh, yeah, just reminding myself here. I see. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I think most of most of it is dedicated to setting out the story of the suppression and I guess not just suppression. It was also um, idea theft. Also took place, and they they go into detail about how these ideas were stolen without or taken used without credit and and essentially brett has been unfairly dealt with it would be fair to say yes yes so maybe starting with a clip would be useful because i think one of the things that i did like about this some people really didn't like this but i find the dynamic between the two brothers to be like so some people find it very grating where eric is kind of pushing brett and berating him about not living up to his potential. But I actually find the dynamic between them quite endearing because, like, in many respects, Eric seems to regard his brother as, like, an unacknowledged genius, maybe only surpassed by him. And that, <laughs> uh, and, and to see him as very much advocating for his, like, younger younger brother so like yeah the, yeah which is very very understandable um yeah I guess, like um, and i i their interactions are like somewhat comedic in that respect you know i have an i have a brother as well and i can imagine him trying to lecture me about how to live my life and you know the the so that dynamic was quite interesting and the first thing i can play this clip for us where this is eric talking about how he sees Brett. I always resented the fact that you really excelled at and enjoyed teaching as much as you did. And you saw this in terms of a place to play with ideas, to teach students, to have a pleasant and enjoyable life, healthy as it was in the great outdoors, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And I still see these characteristics in you and it drives me nuts because you're, you're your own worst enemy in some ways to me. What you really are to me is an unbelievable thinker and researcher and beneath this kind of um, very nice, friendly pedagogue is a thinker that the world doesn't know. And I watched recently your interactions with Richard Dawkins and it was absolutely infuriating. So this this topic of how Dawkins treated Brett in the on stage interactions comes up again <laughs> later. Um, yeah. And and uh, the general view is that uh, he failed to appreciate Brett's genius yeah. adequately. But that's um, that's a good clip to start off with too, because it kind of sets out. You know, it's really quite, quite, um, quite clear in the in the in the motivation for the theme of the podcast, which is that yeah, Eric uh, feels that that Brett has been, you know, is sort of his 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 genius to to use his words is being has been unrecognised. Whereas you know, Eric who knows him very well, um, sees him as a genius. Broader society, the broader world hasn't really recognised this. He's he's been um, when he was working at Evergreen, which ended unhappily. Um, but while he was there, it was mainly focused on teaching. And you know, if, from what I've heard of Evergreen, even though it has it certainly seems to have its faults, it did seem to have, you know, if you could afford to send your kids there, it certainly seemed to provide a very uh, enriching experience. But you know, um, even though I think um, Brett enjoyed his time teaching there like you know um really loved 
interacting with students and teaching and so on. I think I think there's there's obviously this issue there where it's almost like a research career has been thwarted or nipped in the bud with, without him getting a chance to um, grow in that direction. Yeah. So on that, I will I'll play a second clip about Dawkins feeling to to appreciate who Brett really is. So. I mean, he's, you know, he's very clear. He's like, well, Brett is a real hero so far as free speech and standing up for free inquiry goes, but he's very confused. Well, no, I don't think that that's right. I think that you guys had a really substantive interaction about biology, which I wish he would spend more time on because he's phenomenal at it when he's focused on it. Yes. So this is Dawkins feeling to properly grasp, along with everyone else, that Brett is not just this figure who stood up for free speech, but but is a revolutionary researcher. Now, one issue with this narrative concerns the fact that Brett hasn't published much of anything in the 20-odd years in his career. Now, this podcast is is, in many respects, trying to explain to account for that. However, if you are wanting to claim the status of being an influential theoretical thinker, it, it's, it is a very odd situation to be in to not be publishing or not conducting field research or experiments. I mean, maybe Brett is taking trips uh, with students or these kind of things. But, uh, but yeah, it's hard to see how anyone would have perceived Brett to be a major evolutionary thinker because there's little evidence that that's the case yeah yeah i mean i guess i i agree with that assessment i mean it does feel like the um the intent the intent of this episode is to some degree to present brett as an important thinker and at the forefront of evolutionary biology um, which which is obviously very nice his brother uh, would be keen to do that but you know as as you know um being a career academic like myself, I mean, one doesn't get that recognition just by announcing it <laughs> to people. You you really need a, a, a track record, and and uh, the, the the recognition needs to happen in the field. Both both you and I've published quite a lot of papers, and yet I don't think either of us would think of ourselves. I'm, I'm not sure who the analogous person to Richard Dawkins is in psychology, but I I don't know if I'd be able to present myself. <laughs> so confidently as just to be self-proclaimed as, as, as someone who needs to be taken extremely seriously. Yes. And like, I think part of this is that the people who are recognized as Brett kind of acknowledges, you know, Richard Dawkins uh, uh, is understood as a good popularizer of evolutionary theory and, and previously an influential theorist for the genes I view and some of his earlier work with like the baby birds pecking and that kind of thing. But, but most of the people that are talking about are really more popularizers or people who are well known because they're popularizers like Jerry Coyne or uh, when they're talking about the failure to recognize them. Now, these people do have research careers as, as well. But the point is that I think though the, the people that have expressed doubt about Brett's understanding of evolutionary theory, I think that part of that is that they have a point, not that they have missed 
uh, kind of deeply misunderstood things because the um, there's been some criticisms, for example, about Brett has put some lectures on YouTube where he discusses uh, various aspects of evolutionary theory and, and and has some of his own ideas. And and people like Jerry Coyne have criticized them on kind of traditional grounds. And uh, or, or uh, kind of on evolutionary theory, and Brett has Brett has at various times courted controversy by expressing criticism of traditional Darwinian theory. Now he's often doing so in a way that it isn't entirely clear what he's what he's arguing for. Right? It's generally pointing out there are some problems with like neo-Darwinian theory and that this is causing problems or making the field feel to advance. But when pressed for details, they often, you know, kind of retreat the vagaries or, oh, epigenetics is doing interesting things or people are failing to appreciate group selection. And I, nice, I have a nice illustration of this about the Brett noticing that the field is stuck um, where others don't. I've been very clear and very public about the fact that I think my entire field is spinning its wheels, that they've gotten caught by a few bad assumptions and that they are spending decades in the weeds for no good reason, that there is a way out that I didn't know what it was for a long time. I did figure out what it was and getting their attention on the question of what they're doing wrong is a Herculean task. I've made that clear. Yeah. I might jump in with my gut, <laughs> my gut Go response ahead. here, which, um, which is this doesn't really make sense. Like if if you are wanting to point, like uh, if you're wanting to point out fundamental problems with with the the main framework in in a whole discipline like evolutionary biology, then I think you can't just say that to people, tell them that I've got problems, and say it to some popularizers or or famous figures and that that is not that that is not going to happen you you one needs to have a, like a, a a track record and actually have built up it usually takes decades it takes a huge amount of work to well, to, to i think your problem Matt, is that you're coming from a disc perspective you're just trying to mm. suppress the revolutionary insights so mm. the mm. the issue I, that's certainly the way that like brett would see that or or eric would see that right that focusing on publications focusing on track records is a like a red herring now i agree with you that like if you want the claim to have made revolutionary insight you need a like significant amount of evidence so like when darwin introduced natural selection the way he convinced people wasn't just because that he, you know, tell people I have a revolutionary theory. He brought <laughs> mountains of evidence in support. Yeah. And even then it took time to convince people. So it's worth bearing in mind from the context of this that Brett has been post PhD from 2009. So only 10 years, but if you count like the time to PhD, it seems, uh, you know, he was on PhD track for 10 years before that or so. So you have maybe, you know, 20 years of being in, involved in this kind of research academic world. In that time, he published two papers and a thesis, mm. which if you focus on teaching, there's nothing wrong with that as a career choice. There's plenty of people that are good teachers, also good theorists. But if you're looking to make uh, significant impacts on your field and theoretically, and you're not 
publishing papers or you're not publishing books or producing these challenging things, then a, a lot of it just feels like armchair, being an armchair yeah. academic that you're saying, well, everybody in the field is doing it wrong. I would do it right. I could have been a contender springs to mind as a, mm. like, you know, an analogy. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, what, yeah, what it boils, what, what, what it boils down to is that one, if, if one wants people to accept uh, a fundamental change in thinking to, to really change the course of an entire discipline, then you have to come to the table with some pretty substantial stuff. And it's not that, you know, having a publication track record or having an appointment at a prestigious university is like some sort of um, imprimatur of, of authority. It's more just that you have to do the work. You have to, you have to um, yeah. gather, as you said, mountains, mountains of evidence in order to change people's minds. And at the very least, you have to articulate what it is you're suggesting clearly you have to write it down you have to <laughs> distribute it in order in some way shape or form uh in order for it to be properly considered and and if people reject it at, at, because there is no evidence for your proposal then you have to understand that what you're doing is no no different from um sending a letter to you know <laughs> an angry letter to the guardian or <laughs> or writing sure. a, an, a, I- an email to an academic telling telling them that you've um you've, you've got your own new theory of physics that that you really think they should look into. I mean, the academic yeah, is not... Yeah, I should... I think we should say at this point that, like... So this is Brett talking about, like, his potential contribution to, like, evolutionary theory or, uh, like, evolutionary biology. So the this is not really his focus on the telomeres part, which was what the podcast is about. But, but these kind of asides come up in the discussion where Eric Frame is framing Brett as a revolutionary figure. So there's kind of like two separate points. One is like, and I think the reason I mention it is because I suspect he would say, well, I did bring problem with lab mice and telomeres that we'll get into. But uh, I made a theoretical prediction, a prediction and it turned out to be right. And that, that's the evidence. But even if that was true, so you find some, you know, interesting finding that is unexpected and it's, it's predicted by theory and that's very good. That, that gives you an influential paper. It doesn't revolutionize a field. What would revolutionize a field is a research program that constantly demonstrated uh, these, how these insights apply and how they could be expanded on. And Brett it certainly has the hope that he could have that, but there's no evidence that he's, he has that. And I want to just play one clip which, which maybe will serve as a contrast to the way that we are presenting how science is, is advanced and done. Um, so I think this is Brett speaking towards the end of the podcast. This story has many levels of importance. Personally, it gave me the ability, I was already, as you are, very good at not being persuaded by the fact that everybody else disagrees with you that that has an implication. Every great idea starts with a minority of one, and you have to be able to endure being alone with a great idea in order to advance the ball significantly. Yeah. You know, relating this to, to other, to, to other content, I, this rings to me of the Galileo gambit where people present that the only reason they are being unrecognized because the other people are trapped in a paradigm that uh, makes them feel to recognize the inside, just like Galileo or mm. just like uh, Einstein or, you know, various figures are invoked. But 
the reason it's called the Galileo Gambit is because the amount of people who invoke themselves as these misunderstood Galileos is mm. va- exponentially greater than the amount of people who <laughs> actually are. You know, the the lurking geniuses who can revolutionize a field. Those people do exist, but they're very, (laughs) very rare. And also, in almost all cases, some revolutionary insight only becomes strongly persuasive once people do the work to back up that the insight is valid. And the initial observation is often, or the initial theoretical insight is often important, but Mm -hmm. the actual work has to be done. Otherwise, it's fantasizing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's uh, what I really have to do with this podcast is to sort of take, go from the specific and actually make, draw some general lessons from it, you know. And I think one of the lessons here is that just because somebody claims something is true, <laughs> or, or or claims to be a genius, you know, you can't, you cannot. <laughs> that's not enough. Um, as you said, for for every <laughs> for every Isaac Newton, there's there's an awful lot of cranks. I'm not saying these guys are cranks, uh, but I am saying there's a lot of people who think that they have done what Isaac Newton did. Yeah, uh, for every Isaac didn't. Newton, there's a Bert Newton who was like burning <laughs> his dog's poop to transmute coal to dirt or coal to yeah. coal to gold. That's the usual way that goes. Yeah, so, ex- ex- yeah, exactly. I mean, and, you know, and it's nothing. It's not even uncommon. Like it's normal. Every all of us feel. Uh, a little bit special and we're, we all get, um, I guess, entranced with our own ideas. They, our own ideas always seem really good to us. So, you know, it's not, it's not an unusual thing. And, and I guess the other parallel I'll draw, it's a bit more of a stretch than, than yours, but that, um, the, the sort of parallel to the Galileo Gambit in the realm of conspiracy theories. And again, I'm not, um, I'm not necessarily not calling these guys conspiracy theories or whatever, but you know, I will. The, the, uh, you, well, yeah, <laughs> all, all, all in good time. But um, it's it's an extraordinarily common feature of conspiracy theories, which is that the the broader community and whether it's experts, scientists, the public, or whatever, cannot accept this revolutionary groundbreaking idea that the conspiracy group holds because it is too threatening because yes. it is too challenging to their worldview. For instance, flat earthers cannot accept the fact of the flat earth because it would just destroy their entire concept of how the world works, and that's too frightening. The last thing I'll say is that the reason I mention that is that all, um, let's say, idiosyncratic belief systems have a similar problem to solve, which is that they, they, they need an explanation for why everyone else can't see the obvious thing that is that they feel is right in front of their nose. So, sure. uh, and you know, I, I see a slight different, a slight thing here too, which is that there has to be a reason why, say, Brett, Brett's obviously fantastic ideas have been unrecognized, and you know, there's usually an explanation. An explanation is required for why, for why mm. that um, the isn't forthcoming. Mm. Yeah. Yes. So anyway. I, yeah, no, I agree. And I, I also think, it, as you say, there's always an explanation for why the person is unrecognized. And also, there is usually a nefarious entity that is responsible for that. And in, in like traditional conspiracy theorist frameworks, it's the system or the Illuminati or the Greys or whoever it may be, various fantastical people, the fourth dimensional reptiles that people laugh mm-hmm. at. In this case, it's the distributed idea suppression complex. So that's, that's like, like a wordier 
Niem, but when I think about what that means, it comes very close to like the system or the man, right? It, it's yeah, just yeah. institutions and uh, like academia or, you know, the governments, these kind of things. So, and this is not to say that they are always correct, but that, that having this kind of looming boogeyman gives you a reason. It even gives you a reason like why we made this podcast, right? We are part of the disc. So mm. we, we don't get the, at least not yet, we haven't got the checks from the disc for our work in suppressing mm the uh, counter narratives but but maybe they'll be forthcoming and we'll we're, we'll doing, we're, we're, we're doing this idea suppression pro bono man i mean yeah we're, we are on? our problem is we you know in a marxian framework we we've already got our false consciousness and now we're defending the high priests so we're doomed matt <laughs> this is i think this is, the thing is that we are doomed and i'm related to that i i have a clip that, that will express <laughs> this quite clearly this this is one of my favorite clips i have to say from this episode which i think is perhaps one of the best illustrations of eric and brett and how they see themselves i'll play it and then we we can discuss it i think you and i share a certain delight when we do our homework and we discover something interesting and absolutely nobody else gets it mm -hmm. That would feel bad to most people because they would feel like, what am I doing wrong? Why does nobody else understand this point? To you and me, that feels good. It is to know that you have achieved something, you have discovered something, and that nobody else can even recognize it gives you some sort of sense of how far ahead you might be. Yes, so I, I very much want to get your reaction to that, Matt, but I just want to say that <laughs> for me, this is a, like encapsulation of Brett and Eric's tendency towards what I would call science hipster hipsterism, where what's, what's important is that you find something outside that other people couldn't recognize and that you're so far ahead of the curve that you're, you know, you're talking about things that other people don't even know are on the horizon. And Brett, display some insight when he's like most people might think might cause the fact that everyone disagrees with them to like look again at maybe i'm wrong but in his case it just cements that obviously that means him and eric are right and the like both of them clearly as he expresses get the light in the sensation that they are so far ahead of the game um so yeah i'm interested to hear your thoughts on that I, I guess, I guess none of them are short of self-confidence. <laughs> there's a, you know, there's an awful lot of self-confidence there. Um, and actually, uh, oh, one one point to make there is that the reaction to this episode. I mean, so we we're listening to the isolated clips now, but the general reaction to this episode was, well, Eric is, you know, pushing things too much, and he's making like kind of grandiose claims. Poor Brett didn't want to, you know speak out and he was kind of forced by Eric. But when you listen to the, the clips where this is Brett speaking, right? I really don't think Brett is lacking for confidence in his abilities or insight. Uh, I wouldn't say his issue is like an excess of modesty. No, no. Yeah, look, I guess, uh, how, how can I put, how can I put this? I think it's. I think it returns to my point before, which is that if you have a really big claim, 
a really big claim that that you've got this grand new insight. You've you understand understand things so much better than than people who have um, been extremely influential and and really driven a field forwards for for decades. You've got this amazing insight. I think if no one else agrees with you, you haven't convinced anyone else, and you haven't brought evidence to the table that actually convinces them, then you have to keep in mind that you may be delusional. Um, <laughs> you know, we all, we all have a natural, a natural fondness for our own ideas. We all find our own ideas very convincing. It's, that's kind of normal. But when you kind of combine that with a, a, a real massive level of self-regard and self, self-confidence, then I think it can lead you down a certain path. And yeah, so I guess, look, I, I guess my recommendation for people who, who are listening to anything or reading anything from someone, from, from Deepak Chopra to, to, to Eric Weinstein or Stefan Molnir or anybody, I mean, if they're, if they're simply proclaiming to you that they have a unique insight, then my suggestion is to take that with a grain of salt. Sure, sure. And I also think the thing is that, that what they're expressing is genuine and heartfelt, right? Like this, people often get accused of being grifters or, and, and I think, you know, there's various things that people do that justify that critique. But like when it comes to Eric and Brett, my impression is that they are, they're expressing their true belief about yeah. like the, how they see themselves, how they see this, the theory and the field. So it, it isn't just a matter that it's all based on like opportunism or, you know, these kind of things. I, I, I get the impression that these are honest sentiments. And I think because of that, they, they end up with these very weird conclusions. So I've got an example here. This is after Eric has introduced what happened to Brett at Evergreen. And he's talking about how the American biology establishment responded. Okay. When Brett found himself as professor in exile, along with his wife, Heather Hying, I had thought that the American biology establishment would realize that one of their own had been thrown overboard as jetsam and that he would have been invited to many universities to give seminars in biology. Right. And this, this repeats, but like when I remember when I originally heard that, my reaction was, why? Even if he was un- unjustly fired, uh, was he giving seminars in, before in prestigious universities about his, his theory? And, yeah. and the answer is no. And then, okay, so he, even if he was legitimately the subject of you know, this uh, unfair witch hunt by students or whatever way the evergreen events are seen it doesn't mean that he suddenly has revolutionary insight that would mean that he should be invited to present at departments especially if he's not talking about that event yeah which yeah i mean i could give you a personal example here a very recent one which is just just this week several colleagues of mine at my university have sadly lost their positions um, as a result of the massive drop in international students due to coronavirus. Australian academic establishment ponied up to start inviting them? No, no they, no, they haven't yet, Chris, and I don't, I don't think they will. And, you know, I should say that some of these academic, you know, the academics I'm thinking of have a much longer and more substantial academic, like research track record than Brett. So, of course, 
Of course not. <laughs> why? Yeah. Like as you said, why? <laughs> there, there, there is no, there is no system, or or um, there is no board of academics who are monitoring this thing, and they don't have a kind of program to take care of disenfranchised uh, academics with a seminar schedule or something like that. No. Why, why would they? Un- unless you were famous, and you know, perhaps if you were. If you were a legitimately famous person with, with, with a massive track record who, who was just really held in. Even then, I, I understand that in this case, Eric is saying that like Brett is, in, is a victim. But, of course. But there's, a, there's an inherent paradox that he's saying, my brother should not be known for this event. And then he's saying because of this event, he should have been invited to give like lectures and, and talks. And it, I think yeah. that... He's on the one hand saying it's not because of that, but on the, then immediately, you know, yeah. kind of contradicting no. that by uh, yeah, yeah, the the the, the, contra- the contradiction is clear, and and likewise, you know, I think um, Eric acknowledges at the beginning that for for various reasons, Brett ha- hasn't been well known in the research. You know, doesn't have a, a strong research profile, and you know, as we said, there's nothing wrong with that at, at all. Um, there's nothing wrong with focusing on teaching, but you can't sort of have your cake and eat it too if if you're not well-known and recognized for your research profile, then there's no reason for people to offer you a <laughs> seminar series and things like that when they see that you've, um, you're out of a job, uh, unfair though it may have been. So, so look, I mean, my main takeaway from this, Chris, is that, I mean, more than anything, this illustrates like a disconnect with reality, frankly. I mean, to help illustrate <laughs> this disconnect in a, okay. in a way that mm. will be palpable I think to to everyone. So as you mentioned, you know, this already this just this like random example of you know seminars and being invited is is already suggesting a skewed perspective. But I'm going to play a clip from a previous episode. So this is uh, from episode 18 of the portal, where Eric is talking about the distributed idea suppression complex and how it applies to his family. And following on from what you said about you know detachment from reality let's see how he presents his family it is time to do battle with the oppressive structures that have been used to silence new ideas if in my family i assert that there might be as many as three revolutionary nobel quality ideas in one clutch how many ideas might there be suppressed if that is actually true no you, you heard Nobel level, right? The, so e- even granting that that is not directly claiming that Nobels are warranted, it is that the insight is at the level deserving uh, of other Nobel Prizes. And remarkably, Eric, his wife, Pia, uh, her Nobel idea is in economics, this is in theoretical physics, and Brett's is in evolutionary biology. So three Nobel Prize level ideas in one family. Can you believe it? Yeah. Uh, no, I can't believe it. <laughs> what, I mean, it'd be interesting to try to estimate the probability of that. Um, <laughs> of, I'm not um, a mathematician, but I suspect it's not high. It's not high. No, I would, I would say it's not high. So like, I don't know if it's obvious. I mean, what's obvious to you and me uh, being, being career researchers may not be obvious to every listener, but I mean, I'm beginning to think it might be, which is that <laughs> the, the, what they're suggesting isn't just in, not unlikely or implausible. It's, 
it's it's really really implausible. It's it's a bit it's a bit it's an indicator that perhaps someone's <laughs> someone's uh, view of the world is a bit distorted and not not in touch with reality, or, or really maybe just not really having any idea of how the system actually works. Like, it, I mean, but I think most people could figure that out. Like, it's not, hopefully you no say one that. it's all. You say mm. that. But I, I genuinely think that, like, when you hear these clips in isolation, it sounds, wow, they said that. But when it's in a stream of consciousness and it's going through and there's many different claims and, and disclaimers issued around it, it's often very hard to fully appreciate that somebody just claimed that their family has free Nobel Prize level uh, people who, who could have won Nobel Prize in it. So I think very often the audience just doesn't notice these, these points. And, and when people point them out, they say, well, look, you're just focusing on this like one point. It's not really representative of the arguments they're making. And you can forget about the whole Nobel issue and the arguments still stand. But the point that you make that, you know, it's illustrative of the way that they see the world and also their inability to kind of critically evaluate things. That, that makes it important. Yeah. Another illustration of this is Eric encouraging Brett to break his silence about this event. So let's just see how he frames it. Because you're going to do this thing where you downplay your gift and I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I've just, I've had it. And part of it, what happened is that you are now distorting the history of science. You have a place in the history of science that you are not taking up. You are not advocating for. There's something that you don't like about this. No, no, I don't. I don't think this is true. I just think I'm pursuing it. Maybe I'm pursuing it in a way that it doesn't work out in the end, or maybe I'm pursuing it in a way that it would. So, so yeah, the, like I, I would say that, you know, viewing yourself as having a place in the history of science is a pretty grandiose claim, right? And, yeah. and, and you don't hear Brett say like, no, no, hold on. Like my, my theory, you know, is important, but it, I'm, I'm not claiming to be like a grand figure in the history of science. Instead you hear, look, yeah, I agree. But, you know, maybe I'm not going to go about it the same way as you. And yeah, like I've met many kind of very influential theorists you know at conferences and stuff you you meet kind of big names in the field or my phd supervisor is like a big name in my field and these kind of things and those people by and large like with some exceptions there's there's a lot of there are egos in academia and people attached to their degrees but like i've never heard anyone frame themselves in those grandiose terms that they their their place in the history of science is waiting and, and there, these are people who could claim, in some respect, yeah. to have influenced grand theories or scientific research paradigms. So the level of self-aggrandizing and delusion, is, it's pretty hard to overstate. Yeah, it is hard to overstate. I, th- I, think, we've probably, I think we've probably stated it well enough. Thank you, Trump. I think an unfortunate thing that we might have just noticed or both realized is that these, the clips that I'm playing are not supposed to be about this kind of same theme, but they just have a habit of saying, <laughs> of like kind of slipping these, these self-aggrandizing things into a lot of their statements. So, 
So yeah, I've forgotten, I'll, what, our th- I've forgotten what our theme is. What, what's our th- what theme well, are we covering? Look, I think the in this case, the the point that there is perceived to be a Nobel Prize insight here, and yeah, yeah, sure. uh, that. This is one of the greatest moments in evolutionary theory, perhaps in the history of science, and the potential impact is being ignored. Like even before getting to the evidence and the the whole controversy that this is actually about, these are such big claims that you mm. you at when I was hearing this, yeah. I remember thinking, okay, so what is it? Like what is the? And I'm sure the audience has a similar has a similar sense the first time they hear it. What is this groundbreaking? Yeah. yeah, but but it had a big a bit. I guess what you're saying is it had a big build up. <laughs> it had a big build up. Um, I guess. Look, here's the thing. I mean, I can't. I do agree with you actually that I think these guys are in good faith. You know, they they do actually feel this way, and um, they do have this healthy self regard and regard for each other. And 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 in some ways, as you said at the beginning, it's kind of endearing, really. That that to, to feel that way about your brother and want to want to hold hold them up high for for the world to admire. That's you know, there's, there's, there's an aspect of that which is kind of sweet. But the other side of the coin, even though I think that's true, it's in good faith, the other side of the coin is you, getting back to the theme of our podcast, is you, you don't get to be a guru by being modest and self-effacing. Humble. Yeah. Humble. You do. No, you really don't. I mean, this is a common, a common thing for all um, would-be gurus. You really have to go all in in terms of... Terms of building yourself up, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the context is. Um, you, you could have a small kind of interesting sort of fringe religion of some kind, or you, you, you could be building just a just a bit of a weird kind of cult like um, professional group or something like that, where everyone does what you say and nods their head when you say things and do your bidding. And you know, again, I'm not accusing these guys of this, but it is a thing that gurus do, which is self-aggrandizement. It's a pretty simple point, but felt like it had to be pointed out. No, yeah, I, I think it helps. And now that we hammered it into the, the grind, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly have. We, we've made that clear. We can move on to like perhaps another point. And I think a nice one, so for anyone listening who hasn't listened to the, the original podcast, the insight that Brett had is basically as a graduate student, he, he basically posited this trade-off between the length of telomeres that if they're very long, you can live immortally and your cells can continue to divide. But, but that increases your risk of cancer. More cell divisions lead to more cancer. Shorter telomeres place limits on how much the cells can divide through these things called Hayflick limits. And so there's a kind of balancing act between processes that allow cells to divide and grow and the potential for the formation of cancer. And so this telomere length is a crucial seesaw element in nature uh, that, that relates to senescence, aging, and, and cancer formation. And that he found some issue where particularly laboratory mice, they have very long telomeres, but they're short-lived. And, yep. uh, so why, and also prone to cancer. So, uh, like, well, long telomeres would make them prone to cancer, but like their lives are short, and and so this seemed to be an issue. But uh, but the point that you made that they have particularly long telomeres is something which uh, 
was not known or or at least was was not experimentally validated and and Brett thought that they should have long telomeres because of their proneness to cancer and uh, and he saw that uh, that mice being known to have short telomeres kind of uh, and and yet to to kind of produce mass amount of cancer was a, a kind of contradiction and so mm. yep. he, he hypothesized that uh, maybe this isn't true and that mice actually do have short telomeres and this is why they're short-lived and and and, uh, and when he he contacted researchers who worked on telomeres and this kind of area and they looked into and this is through brett's telling and they looked into his idea they find that lo and behold the most commonly used uh laboratory mouse species the model animal actually did have very long telomeres and that this was a surprising result and that it was the result of kind of breeding protocols which selected for uh, it, which selected for individuals younger in life so they could kind of uh, the later life genetics were distorted right because the uh, the negative effects that did not emerge before they bred right so they could kind of stack up and uh, so they have these very long telomeres which makes them like uh, very good at cell repair but cancer uh, prone Prone. as well Mm. and that this makes them a terrible model organism for humans because it means that we when we when we test treatments on them that we we might see not detect damaging effects which would emerge if you are some if you are a human without these massively elongated telomeres which allow like cell repair um so yeah so this this insight he he theoretically predicted and it was confirmed by some other researchers who were looking at the same topic and he thinks that this is uh this could undermine the drug safety of all drugs uh, in most of the drugs across at least across america and that it it has implications for just everything the like senescence research cancer so on and so forth so so yeah they, in that framing perhaps it's more clear why you know the audience would would agree that this is a important discovery and like the that its suppression is important. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. Yes, that's a, that's a pretty good overview of a reasonably technical uh, topic. Um, actually, it's a quick question. I mean, when I listened to this, and I I got the impression that it was rather technical. Like, you know what I mean? Like it seemed, it seemed important, it seemed, seemed useful, but you know, as you know, in, in any field, there are sort of technical results and then there's the kind of the grand theoretical type, type really big stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, the small stuff is still important. You know, you need to get all of those little things right. And if there's a problem, for instance, with your model animal or whatever that needs to be identified and so on, it can lead to problems. So, but it, it seems the general scope of the whole thing seems reasonably yeah technical and limited well yeah. yes. maybe, maybe I, I asked that because maybe i'm missing something maybe maybe there's an implication here which kind of would would change our entire view of how evolutionary biology works uh, i mean how aging works 
I, I mean, I think that they, in their framing, it does because the it, it it like relates to drug treatments and relates to aging and it relates to cancer and it's like it's a fundamental element of life. But your your point that okay, but all of this comes from the telomeres of mice is is reasonable and more reasonable by the fact that if you introduce this point about laboratory mice not being perfect analogs for humans, it's already a well-known fact in the field. And there, there are other papers talking about the limitations of like mice models. And there, there are many other species of mice. And like, it is also true that we don't just talk about laboratory mice, right? We talk about laboratory rats and all drug studies are conducted in like with humans require free phase trials with humans, the, you know, mm, tolerance mm. studies and the dosage response and, and, and so on right up to like clinical trials and yeah, studies with, with sick patients and study with healthy volunteers. So like there's a whole infrastructure around that and masses of researchers working on these questions. There's tons of, there's a whole research field focusing on telomeres and what they do. And so given that yeah. it's 20 years uh, since this issue, it would, it would seem that, you know, even if it was what they're saying, what, what's happened since then, or, you know, the, the, the fields have progressed and there's, there's, I, I think basically what I'm saying is like the, the chance of overstating the significance is, is great. And what's, yeah. what makes that more likely is that we, as we'll kind of get to, a lot of this, this podcast revolves around like what was published or what wasn't acknowledged about this, this discovery. But this discovery that we're talking about, this revolutionary discovery, is mentioned in at least two papers. One by Brett in 2001, I believe, and one by a Nobel laureate, Carol Greeder, and her student uh, in 2000. So the, mm -hmm. the, the insight, the, the finding that Brett is talking about is in the literature. Yeah, yeah it found its way into the literature. Yeah, sure. Yes, yeah. and uh, Brett's paper is cited... 64 or sorry 2002 is cited 64 times and uh, i don't have the the other one in front of me but i think it's it's it's, it's significantly more maybe like 200 or 300 which is like a, a significant very good citation rate but not it's not it, you know it's um, not the yeah it's not it's not the kind of like if like there are as you know there's this really long tail when it comes to citations and papers that are massively influential get this just huge number of citations and the rest of us poor suckers who are writing normal papers that get normally cited are, are part of that long tail. So yeah, if the citations and are for this, for this finding, which as you said, has been published is in a sort of 60 to a few hundred mark, then, you know, it's, it's not nothing. It's good. It's a good respectable impact. And obviously people paid attention um, and cited it, but it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not, well, it's not like, it's, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, you know, as academics, we, we the, like some of this is intuitive, but like a paper that's cited, that's cited 64 times over 20 years is not a revolutionary no. paper. Even a paper that's cited like 300 times or whatever, it, it, there are papers that are cited 6,000 times or these kind of yeah. 
like that those are revolutionary papers yeah. a good and, a good example is uh, claude shannon's paper on information theory it's when he published the mathematical theory of communication cited 50,459 times right so that's a that's a that's a groundbreaking paper okay so we're back so i think um because of the um, magic of uh, audio technology, we're going to stitch this together. But we're we're reconvening after uh, a little break in time, and we're going to get to the meat of the uh, episode now. I think where we're going to we're going to look at what Brett talks about in terms of his experience uh, in submitting his his paper to Nature, and just take a look at that. I think Chris. So. Do you want to give us a bit of a, a bit of a backstory of what's going on here? Yeah. So after maybe over an hour, we we have decided to actually talk about the main point of the podcast: um, the repression by the disc of of one Brett Weinstein, um, and it's a saga for the ages. But the the way that they tell it is it revolves around this paper that Brett has written to alert the world to this discovery about telomeres and the potential problems with the mice models and this trade-off between the length of telomeres and propensity for cancer. So the saga is mostly about what happens with this paper. And as academics of sorts, we have experience with papers and peer review so I think we can maybe put into context how surprising some of the things are that Eric and Brett present about what happened and, and just how, how much suppression is involved. Yeah, yeah. So I remember from listening to this, the, there were a lot of things presented as, I guess, a little bit uh, outrageous and just exceptional and, or mysterious or um, concerning about the process. Um, which didn't quite ring true to me from memory. So, uh, but yeah, we we can work through them and see what we think, I guess. Yes, and it's hard to know where to start, but I think a good place is that the nature submission is at the heart of the whole episode. And nature, for anyone who doesn't know, is like one of the premier journals for science. Like getting published in nature is a very big deal, career making for some people. So it's, it's kind of the goal for every everyone in hard sciences, social sciences. It's, it's a big yeah. deal to get a paper in nature. It's a very big deal. Like, you know, to as a point of comparison, I haven't done too badly in academia. I'm a full professor, which is as high as they get. I'd be delighted if a paper of mine was accepted in a journal half or a quarter even, <laughs> as, as difficult to get into as nature. It doesn't happen to everybody by any means. Uh, certainly doesn't happen to many PhD students, uh, Chris. So, no. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a moonshot, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big thing. Yeah, so, so to submit it to nature suggests, you know, that you think this paper is, a, it, is an important discovery, which Brett obviously did. And he... He elicited some help with the submission from big names or within relevant fields. So he he mentions that contacting a, a kind of well-regarded evolutionary biologist called George Williams to help with the submission. So uh, I, let me just play a short clip of... We send it to George Williams. 
the the the, the, like the, the the number one guy in the world the number one senescence guy at the evolutionary level in the world right. and he writes a beautiful recommendation letter for this piece we're going to send it to nature george williams tells nature you need to take this piece very seriously okay so so matt let me ask you just one question this is this is mm. even before we've got the high nature response to this but have have you ever in your career asked someone who's not an author on the paper to uh, write you a letter to the journal that you're submitting to say you need to take this paper seriously <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you know my answer to this one, Chris. <laughs> uh, no, no, I've not done that. I've never heard of anybody doing that. No. Yes. So I like to to peek behind the scenes. When we discussed this originally, I didn't even realize that was what he was suggesting. I, I, I for some reason, I had the notion that he was talking about a co-author writing a cover letter, which is a normal thing. But yeah. But when you pointed out to me that uh, actually isn't that isn't that not somebody on the paper it suddenly like came home how unusual and bizarre that would yeah. be because it's it's yeah it, I mean it's, it's also incoherent I guess because I think one of the Weinstein's sort of perennial gripes is the uh, I guess hidden system of influence underlying academia which is purportedly kind of acting as gatekeeping and prevent and you know con controlling who gets to publish what and what what gets what gets out there yet to you know play up the the prestige of the person who's recommending your paper is exactly the kind of thing that first of all academics don't do and journals don't usually take into account anyway but they're doing you know, in my experience, at least to the limits of my experience, they are almost unique in being the only ones who are actually doing the thing which they are very upset about, which... Yeah. Am I, being, am I being unfair there, Chris? No, you're not, I think, uh, Matt, because one of the big pillars of the Weinstein's complaint is how much of science is a, like, old boys network and that it's all people dealing behind the scenes and who you know and and what kind of influential institution you're related to. Um, so you would imagine that that would make them n opponents like, of kind of getting uh, uh, big names to, to sign letters and you need to take this paper seriously. And I have an, another clip which kind of shows that far from being opponents, they are, they are strong advocates of this approach when it comes to Brett's work. So let me illustrate. But the problem, Brett, is, is that Jerry Coyne and Richard Dawkins did not know that Dick Alexander, Leonard Hayflick, and George Williams yeah. were all on this thing because that community had broken down. Oh, sorry. That's the that's wrong clip. Although it's, it's illustrating the same point that Dawkins and Jerry Coyne being unaware of the prestigious people who had endorsed. But the, the correct <laughs> clip, I think, was... Maybe this one. Let's see. Hopefully. <laughs> Very professional. Hayflick yeah. was positive towards you. Williams was positive towards you. And Dick Alexander. Those were the three that blew me away. That's a huge amount of firepower. That's a lot of firepower. And it wasn't enough. Mm. So all of these examples, uh, and they're like out of context, they might be a little unclear what they're referring to. But 
I think the message which comes through is that Brett and Eric are certainly not averse to mentioning influential people and to using their prestige to argue that the for that reason people should heed what is being said. Yeah, and that nature, this extraordinarily competitive journal, should should publish the the paper. Yeah, I mean. That's just not how things are done. That's not how things ought to be done. Um, you know, peer reviews are very systematized process, even though I haven't submitted to nature personally, virtually certain the process there is the same as with every other journal, which Let is me. that the editor takes a cover letter, uh, the, the, the manuscript itself, and takes it on its merits. Um, yeah. and then evaluates it with respect, um, with, with, with reference to reviewers, that it's just not done through amassing firepower of prestigious people telling the editor that they should <laughs> accept this paper. On that note, though, that like when it works, that is true. All of the points that you made about you know, what, what should happen, that, that is the way when it's working. But it is the case that, you know, influential people can know people on editorial boards and, and can exert influence or some big name can, uh, you know, the editor could treat their submission differently than they might do for like a junior academic they don't know. So like these uh, objections are not entirely unreasonable, but it's more in line with like what you described is the ideal and it is also i would say it's probably m most of the time what happens that the, yes. there is a fair process but but the the bizarre bit is they're kind of simultaneously complaining about the informal networks and seeking to utilize them to to get published so yeah. so also the and it's i guess it's a little bit frustrating because i don't think it's a spoiler to say that the paper was ultimately not accepted by no nature <laughs> I, I despite all of the influential people that had been brought to bear uh, it, 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 it wasn't. And so I think um, all of this, this stuff is cited as evidence for the mysterious nature. Oh, no, we, like, I, I, I do have that clip. And this is not the wrong one about nature's response, which I, I think is important to hear. But uh, I think anyone listening should note in this context that like I looked into the statistics about so so like a paper when it goes to a journal it can either be rejected by the editor in that case we talk about it being desk rejected or it can be assigned to reviewers who uh, the editor sends it out and they may then review it and recommend rejection or mm, ask for review revisions or yeah that, so you can kind of get rejected at a second stage after reviews or you can get asked for revise and resubmit so there, there's like various stages, but the desk rejection stage is the first one and it's the first hurdle. And the nature, when I look back at the statistics around about the time Brett was submitting, desk rejection rate was around 60 to 70% of papers. So that means 60 to 70% of papers submitted to nature get desk rejected, which would mean that, you know, if you're submitting to nature, you should basically your default assumption should be that you'll be desk rejected, even if you have a good paper. I mean, generally people only submit really good papers to Nature because they know it's a waste of time otherwise, yeah. Um, yes, I've been on papers submitted 
to nature, including papers that went out for review, you know, that didn't get desk rejected. But even when they were going out for review, all of the people in the research group acknowledged it was a long shot, right? And, mm, and yeah. we're not surprised when eventually we ended up rejected. So let's hear how Brett and Eric respond to this very predictable outcome. And they send it back with one of their absurd form letters that says that the nature of the article is such that it's probably not limited of interest. interest to their <laughs> readers. And we're, you know, I mean, we had a good laugh about that. You know, it's cancer, it's senescence. Dude, it's, it, 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 it's, 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 uh, it's so bad. Like this is a response that indicates either malfeasance or an ELISA program or, or, or the, the janitor ended up responding who didn't know any biology. It's, it's, it's the craziest thing. And, you know, the cherry on top is that they're turning down George Williams recommendation. Like how great do they know who he is? Like what? Where what, is, in what on what planet? On what planet do you turn down his recommendation to look at something about senescence? So. Look, I just have to say, it would be impossible to parody somebody, you know, more relying on prestige that actually states, do they not, do they know who he is? Like, that's, yeah. a, that, that, that's a meme for, yeah. like, a, you know, somebody relying on, like, prestige and having too much self-importance. Yeah, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, Chris, because, you know, my instinctive reaction to this is not good. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> I mean, and I don't want this to, I don't want to be uh, that guy, <laughs> but, you know, there's nothing about that sentiment, which is good. Um, the Firstly, of course, that they send out form letters. Yeah, of course, they write something polite, which is, unfortunately, this, this, this uh, topic of this article may not be of interest to our readers. We all have seen those letters a hundred times yeah. in our career. That's not something you should be offended or insulted by. Um, but it feels like they're just, that's, anyway, so their reaction is just completely weird to me. Um, it's it's like, it's super hyperbolic. And it, it just speaks to like a massive lack of perspective about, you know, how, how, how peer review works. Like not getting published in nature is not a big deal for people. It's an expected outcome. And, and when that happens, your next step would be, okay, so got rejected at nature. Let's go to the next journal. That's, yep. that's usually how people respond. But here it's presented as this is a noteworthy you know, event. And, and yeah, one that and, and cries it's, it's, out and, for explanation. Yeah, that's right. It, it's represented as crying. It's just being absolutely mind-boggling and mystifying and crying out for some kind of explanation. And I guess they feel that it's especially mystifying because it was rejected despite having been endorsed by these uh, pre very prestigious figures, which shouldn't be a factor in their decision at all. And I'm actually glad to see that it wasn't because that's how things ought to work. Yeah. Um, and, and so if we move on from there, what happens next is that after getting this negative response, Brett uh, decides to send the paper to Carol Greeder, the eventual Nobel Prize winner and, and sort of eventual villain of the piece, but who at this stage was seen as somebody who, you know, had had provided the empirical data that, that proved like Brett's prediction correct and 
who would be an ally for this paper. So Brett asks, can he send it to her? And uh, you know, maybe she can give some advice about or or see what she thinks about it uh, um, or what went wrong. And and she he he reports back that he gets her. She sends him like this detailed response to the paper. And like, I think if she FedExes it over, and this is like a crucial piece of information that they have her handwriting on the paper because she slams it. And Brett takes it as coming out of nowhere that like there's, he describes, you know, there's tons of notes and it's like, she hates the paper and she's extremely critical of it. So Brett's reaction to that is to assume that that is indicative of ulterior motives or something has changed uh, or there's like something else at at play because as he sees it, her criticisms are incoherent and like completely contradictory. But there's no there's no actual reason to accept that that's true because what it sounds like to me as somebody who has worked on or has sent papers to other people or received papers from people that you often do get back like very critical comments, especially from external reviewers who haven't or yeah. aren't on the paper. Yeah. And yeah, in fact, yeah. actually, Chris, um, so, sorry to interrupt, but no, go um, ahead. Like, yeah, as as my colleague and friend often says, he says that academia is like this long experience of being kicked in the nuts and then kicked in the nuts again and again, and then saying, "Okay, thanks. Can I can I please be kicked in the nuts again?" Right? It's it, it's a culture of criticism, it's just incessant constant yeah. critique yeah um and it's it's a good thing you know it, it it um you know you don't have to take the criticism on board you can um you can you know reject the criticism and not make the changes you can but I, in my experience there's almost always a lot of good you know even in criticism that's overly harsh or, or or misplaced in some respects there's usually a lot of gold in there you know when someone is actually taking the time to to read your work and critique your work um a smart academic pretty much always takes that inf- information on board and uses it to make the paper or the exposition of the paper better. And in fact, in having supervised um, a number of PhD students now, I, I've found that, um, yeah, one of the big predictors of success is the ability to take on critical feedback 100%. And, and not be precious about it, but to actually take that on and, and and there are there's a particular kind of student that I've supervised I have sure. to say and a colleague that I've worked with uh, or colleagues that I've worked with who who can't do that and it's it's not a good sign is it no and and a hundred percent the I a hundred percent agree with that sentiment that the the ability to accept very harsh criticism uh, especially especially when you're sending work because like you have to remember that the original way Brett contacted Carol was as a kind of PhD student with some ideas and asking her opinion right and at that point you might be you know friendly supportive like if you're a good mentor or a kind person you generally are encouraging of PhD students but what changes is when somebody wants to publish something in the literature then it it becomes a matter that you should give a professional critique so it could easily be that carol was you know supportive friendly encouraging and then she sees the paper and she feels he's completely wrong he doesn't really get it or like it it isn't the case that her reaction means that she was kind of lying at any point it's entirely possible that she's now just giving feedback to a paper which she doesn't like 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's um, yeah, I've been in exactly the same boat myself. Yeah, um, it's entirely normal, as you say. Um, it's a it's a different standard. Like when you're when you're evaluating a paper, you're evaluating it from the point of view of what does this paper? It's not about being encouraging or supportive or nice. It's about looking at the work and going, what does that need in order to get get into the literature and be well received? Um, and that's a high that's a high bar. And it it, um, it, may, it doesn't feel supportive. It feels highly critical. <laughs> um, it, it's like getting reviewer feedback when you submit a journal. Um, it's 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 never pats on the back and aren't you clever. It's it's always just yeah harsh harsh criticism. Um, it does feel to me that that is something that um, that maybe Brett is not good at, or at least wasn't at that time good at receiving but i'm just guessing here i don't know all the circumstances but one, so, one can't help but suspect yeah so if we move to the next part after the negative review from carol then brett receives what we would know as a, a solicited submission so there's another journal uh, the editor contacts brett and after some time, I think Brett got disheartened by the response or something. But in any case, he's contacted by the journal who says, oh, we heard about this paper. Uh, we, you know, we'd be interested if you would submit it. And, and I think he speculates that it's likely to be through the connections of Bill Hamilton that, uh, that he got this offer. Um, so Journal of Gerontology or something like that, uh, which he points out is, you know, uh, significantly less prestigious journal than nature but but nevertheless still you know peer-reviewed journal um so he gets his request from that journal to submit and sends it in now before we go into what happens at the like that journal i just want to note that again getting a solicited submission because of a famous person contacting an editor or, you know, a big name in the field leveraging their influence. In most cases, that, that like, it sounds exactly like the thing Brett and Eric are, are reeling against again. But in this case, it's, it goes unremarked or, or like kind of as a footnote. But solicited submissions for journals are, I think, relatively rare until unless you're a prestigious person. And their status is somewhat ambiguous about you know the not 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 whether it's okay or not but like the the way that they might get an easier ride than an unsolicited submission yeah yeah exactly actually just by the by i happen to have been i happen to receive a solicited uh, invitation (laughs) today that's because i'm kind of a big deal Not I, look, all, I've also, I've also, I will, uh, <laughs> I, I also have had uh, But the, in my case, it's usually for commentary on someone bigger's article, or it's because one of my coworkers, who is a bigger name, asks me to do it with them. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Like, well, they, maybe they don't feel like writing the paper. And uh, so I, I think I have a couple of chapters and books coming out this year. And obviously, they're all like requested by the editors of the book. So, so yeah, like it happens. I'm not looking down on people who who receive requests. I'm saying that is an example of uh, kind of like that in the way that Brett tells it about prestige being leveraged in his favor, which Eric and Brett yeah, which, should be opposed to. Which is a mess. Yeah, and so one, it's except it's it's a little bit exceptional for a PhD student. 
to have that. Sorry, was Brett still a PhD student at this yes, stage? Yes, at that stage. That was, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is that is exceptional and a real, you know, lucky break. You know, I don't know whether, you know, somebody spoke to someone. Someone must have spoke to someone to for them to be aware, I guess, of 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 Brett. Um, had, had he published before at this point? Uh so I'm uh, the timeline's a bit messy in my head, but I. No, he hadn't. I believe this is his first article. Or if there was, it was one before, but I'm pretty sure it's his first article. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, unless you're a, like a well-known name, which, of course, he wasn't at this point. But Bill Hamilton um, was. Oh, Bill. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, so, yeah, like he had friends in high places and, um, and that, that definitely contributed to an easy ride. And as you said, it's a little bit ambiguous, even if you're... Um, you know, well-established when you get a, a solicited invitation, it's kind, it's kind of compromising the um, review process a little bit. You know what I mean? Because even though it does go to review and stuff like that, it's kind of, it's a little bit implicit that it might have a, an, an easier ride. But, um, but yeah, I mean, um, yeah, as you said, it goes unremarked, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, it should be like, that's not something that a PhD student would usually get. So, um, no, no. Yeah, I, 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 so I guess I guess the disc has been in in this in this respect has been kind. It's enlisted. The disc is you know flying uh, towards a publication, but um, mm. they, but there's a there's a hurdle coming. My metaphor is like breaking apart here, but there's a, there's a big hurdle coming in the shape Uh-oh. of an anonymous reviewer. Uh, so. Uh-oh. The solicited review is sent. I solicited paper is sent out to re- anonymous review, which is good. That's a process, and it returns with a extremely negative review, basically slamming the paper. Now, at mm. this point, Brett assumes that that is a review from Carol because he suspects, you know, it's in her field, obviously, and in her interest, and maybe he recognizes some uh, parallels in the criticism. And he considers them all to be low quality, not actionable, and, and almost incoherent. Inco- um, so, so his response to receiving that, that very harsh review is to sit on the paper, and he, he kind of reports that he didn't do anything for a long time, uh, and then... Eventually, he writes back to the editor and says he's not going to make any changes because he doesn't consider the reviews high quality unless the editor specifically wants him to change something. So if the editor points out which ones are good, that he'll take a look at it. And as soon as he submits that, he reports within minutes, he gets word back that the paper is accepted. And he takes this as vindication that the review was not high quality and that the, uh, the editor recognized that, you know, the comments and suggestions were all invalid. What do you think? Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's well, a little bit unusual. So in terms of the, like, the editor's response, that's unusual to the extreme because like, editors are not, editors have the ability to overwrite reviewers. But they usually only do so, you know, if they have mixed reviews or whatever, they might decide over the objections of one reviewer to, uh, to publish the paper. But if they get only negative reviews, it's rare for an editor to, like, uh, accept the paper on their own grounds. So that, Brett's inference from that, though, seems unwarranted because the explanation which seems more parsimonious to me 
is that it's a solicited article and that mm. he's now refusing to do re- revisions or, you know, or kind of respond to very negatively revisions. And it sounds like the editor just said, well, okay yeah. then, and yeah. accepted it. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, as, as you said, it's a, as we said, it's a bit of an easier ride for, for solicited articles. Um, usually you really ought to, even if you don't want to action the, 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 um, the reviewer comments, you really should explain why point by point. Um, doesn't sound like um, um, he did that. Sound like he did, did that. Um, yeah, sometimes the editors just go, just think, well, you know, it's okay. Wave it through, let it go. Yeah. Yes. So the I I and I want to take stock here because what's happened, right? If we think back about this process now, Brad submitted to the most prestigious scientific journal in the world, was desk yep. rejected, then mm-hmm. received uh, invited submission at. Uh, so this is the second journal he submitted to, refused to do revisions when requested by a uh, negative reviewer, and the paper was accepted and thereafter published. So this yep. tale, which has, you know, online been presented as the like one of the greatest suppression stories never told in science, is yeah. getting accepted in the second journal via solicited yeah. submission. It's it, it's actually a tale of an extraordinarily easy ride to publication. Yes, yeah. let me just give like one example. And like I'm a random early career academic, right? I have I have been involved in a paper that went through no less than I think six journals uh, over the space of mm, two to three years uh, for yeah. publication. And the first journal almost published it without, yeah. with minor revisions. So, and we received, you know, conflicting reviews, positive reviews, negative reviews, like the, the whole gamut. And uh, that's not unusual. Like the experience I just described is not unusual. Every no. academic has no, yeah, look, in fact, Chris, just today, I've got another example from today as it happens. Um, I'm a co-author on a paper that was just uh, accepted. Uh, yeah, it was rejected um, by by three journals beforehand, you know. Um, the, the lead author admittedly aimed high and sort of progressively <laughs> revised their expectations. It's, it's a minor paper, you know. Um, I don't, you know, none of us gave any of those rejections much thought. Sure. Uh, it's entire, entirely normal, and uh, it was it happened to have been accepted today. So, yeah, this is nothing. And this uh, is nothing. Uh, Matt, I also this. don't yeah. blame people who are not academics who haven't experienced this to uh, because the way that the brothers frame it as as if this is a great you know scientific misjustice or yeah. uh, and oh, um, it, also Chris also I think in in some ways I don't I can understand why Brad is got the wrong end of the stick here. But is that is that an international expression? That's an Australian one anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think, uh, uh, yeah, got the wrong end of the stick. Uh, uh, yeah, did okay. you say the old yeah. stick? No, no, the end, okay, yeah, okay, the end yeah. of the stick. Okay, okay, good. Um, yeah, like it, it's because he isn't at this point, you know, he's not an experienced researcher. I, I got the impression that he was kind of, alienated from his supervisor or not in close contact with his supervisor or something. I don't know. Maybe it was not. In, um, so I guess to him, it felt, it all felt entirely exceptional, you know, it felt mystifying. Why, 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 why didn't nature accept my amazing paper? Um, you know, why did this reviewer have all these unfair uh, revisions? Um, 
like unless unless you've got a bit of experience under your belt or unless you're being advised by someone who is experienced you might well think that you know and you've got a very high opinion of your <laughs> and we all do we we have a high opinion of our own work you know um Matt, I, the I, way, I, I have to follow on with one point that you make there because I think there's a clip that's extremely related to this. So like we all do have, you know, relatively, we like our own work. I mean, in, in, in some respect, you know, I hate my own work because I'm extremely well, yeah. critical of it. And after I read, you know, a couple of months later, I hate whatever I said. But, uh, but like at the same time, you know, you, you generally tend to like things that you're doing or I don't know, I don't know. Like, but... I I want to just play a clip about what I think this is back when Brett was rejected from nature and what he did as a step and then uh, maybe we can talk about like what this suggests about frame of mind or or kind of self belief but uh, yeah have a listen to this. Now the irony is I sent a letter to Dawkins when this was going on asking for his help and he sent back a letter saying um, this is very interesting it's not my area of specialty you should talk to bill hamilton all right so this i think this is when the uh nature rejection had just uh came in but the point i want to note there is he emailed richard dawkins right who's a well-known famous evolutionary yeah. theorist at that t- stage and as a phd student I'm pretty sure that would be like, you know, being in astrophysics and thinking like, maybe I should reach out to Neil deGrasse Tyson to like help me get my paper published. Yeah. I was just thinking of the parallel in psychology, my area and thinking, well, that would be, I guess, me getting rejected from a journal and writing a letter to Steven Pinker saying, please, could you... um, you know, kick in here. Um, I'm amazed that he got a response from Dawkins at all, actually. that's that's. Uh... Yeah, maybe he's good at writing, you know, letters. I mean, him and Eric are certainly good at selling controversies. So the, who knows the way it was framed. But uh, yeah, and, and may have been Dawkins who kind of, you know, put him in touch with Bill Hamilton, um, who, who was one of the figures that he reported being positive about the paper. But in... In any case, and a point, another point that we kind of glided past was that Brett was sure, and Eric and Brett spent some time on this, that very, very likely that Carol was the reviewer. But there's, there's no actual evidence that this is the case, right? Because the reviewer was anonymous, and their assumption is because they received their critical feedback. Like, again, they received a negative review, and the only other negative review that they'd received was Carol's. But the point I want to make here is that the positive reviews they had received were all from people in their network, like Dick Alexander, who was friends with Hamilton. Or these people like the paper, give positive remarks. But these are all people, you know, that have some degree of interpersonal relationship. Carol Greeder is outside, an expert in this area, gives a negative review. This external anonymous reviewer, who could be Carol Greeder or could be someone completely different, gives an also very harsh negative review. So like, if it's me, the thought, like maybe I would think, is this Carol? But my other thought would be, is there a problem with the paper that I don't see or that, you know, this is two negative, very negative reviews I've received. Like, is there a point? And we're all defensive about our papers, but that possibility seems to be like alien to Brett. 
that yeah. the floor could be with his paper. That's, that's not possible. So the question becomes, who are these alien reviewers or, or like what's their agenda these, to yeah, deny yeah, who, the brilliance? Who, yeah, who are the hostile uh, forces? Uh, yeah, because it's kind of the only possible explanation when you feel like your paper is or your work is, um, is without flaw. Yeah, I mean, look, it's worth, you can only repeat it, but um, negative reviews, even when your paper is good, even when yeah, the paper is You get very harsh reviews, usually. You get very harsh reviews, usually. Yeah, that's just normal, and it doesn't mean that anyone has anything against you. Um, yeah. So one part that this relates to is that while all this is going on, there's a separate paper that this is with Carol's group, which basically is looking at the telomere length in lab mice and uh, making this point that the telomeres are elongated in this species that, you know, Brett has looked at. So this is the work of one of Carol's grad students and Carol and and the grad student, Mike Herman, I think is his name, have done that research and found out this discovery. And Brett reports that when he asks her about when she's going to publish the paper, that she basically says, it's not a priority. They're keeping the information in-house. And we can hear what he thinks about that. Okay, so this is Brett talking about the decision for them not to prioritize, like making this information public. I could publish this result. It and then everyone would have huge, it. but then I'm on a level playing field with everybody else. If I don't publish this result, I have a stream of papers I can get at. Then I can start predicting other results. Nobody will know how I am doing that thing. I will look like a super genius. And so holding it in house is a mechanism for a whole slew of papers to be to be 100 you can afford to bend over backwards and not make inferences let's say the following holding it in house is a seemingly inexplicable decision in science but for for the fact that it fits at least one story of this kind which is that it is consistent with wishing to publish a stream rather than the source of the information that would allow you so you can either do one discovery or you can do a stream of predictions mm. okay right. so th uh, did that make sense what they're suggesting that they're keeping the information in their lab in order to produce more publications and that people without this information are missing key knowledge so they'll be able to predict tons of interesting things and people will think they're super geniuses um, right so this is sorry just to clarify this is this is them referring to carol graders and her laboratory her grad student and her uh paper uh, which which is yeah. on the mouse telomeres and, and I'm, this a little, is, I'm, I'm a little bit ahead. confused about one thing which is this making predictions, you know, um, so keeping, not, not publishing immediately, which by the way, well, we can talk about that. Mm. <laughs> um, but where, where and how are these predictions made and how are they appearing super geniuses? I'm not sure. Are they writing papers that are just predictions? I, I kind of, that doesn't. The, the, I, that point about like that this insight is like super important and crucial to a whole range of things that will allow you to look like a genius 
as far as I can see, that's mostly in Brett's imagination because the mm-hmm. paper, when it does uh, come out, and by the way, the paper comes out, uh, like I, I don't have the years in front of me, but I believe Brett's paper comes out in 2001. Uh, oh, maybe it's 2000. Uh, I'm, I'll check these in a minute to be clear. But, but in any case, this sounds like they're going to keep this in-house and pump out paper after paper after years. But the actual paper comes out within a year. I can't remember if it's a year before or a year after Brett's paper. I think it's a year before, which mm. means that like, given this time frame, you're talking about one or two years to publication from the discovery, which is actually nothing and also no time to uh, produce things. So what it sounds like is that Brett has reinterpreted this conversation for them to say like that they're, they're going to keep the information in-house and they're, they're not going to share it. But it more sounds like they didn't consider it a priority, but they still produced the paper within you know one to two years, which is actually a fast turnaround. And I, mm. let me play the kind of clip where he talks about this because it seems like a complete contradiction to, on the one hand, be like, they're, they're keeping this behind closed doors so they can benefit from it. And then to say this. My relationship with Carol is changing its tenor and she is becoming hostile and I'm not clear on what's going on. I contact her and I discover through talking to her that she and Mike are about to publish their paper on the long telomeres of laboratory mice. So this is the delta between uh, wild type and laboratory mice. Yeah. And I'm shocked because she's told me they're keeping it in house. And instead they've got a paper that they're, she says in final revisions, they are that day submitting their final revisions to nucleic acid research with their paper. Hmm. So the like the point here, which Brett also highlights, is that she apparently was keeping it in house, but now they're publishing a paper. So it, I don't see how you can complain simultaneously about both things. So and it seems that your inference that they were keeping it behind closed doors to produce all these slew of publications is wrong, because the yeah. paper is coming out. I maybe ahead of Brett's paper. Yeah, yeah, I don't get it. It seems contradictory. And I also, the other thing I can't get past is the motivation for keeping it secret or in-house. It's not secret. It's just delaying publication, which happens all the time for any number of reasons, of course. Um, not, not least reviews. Oh, God, yeah, or rejections <laughs> and resubmissions. Like that process of getting rejected could take six months, you know. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, the um, I don't get the cash, the supposed cachet for keeping it in-house, which, as you said, they didn't anyway. <laughs> but the supposed cachet is from making predictions and appearing like super geniuses. I don't understand where those predictions are occurring or why that matters. I don't know. Anyway, I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, so this story about repression and suppression of knowledge, the the kind of important point to note here is we have two papers coming out by Brett's own admission within a couple of years, one to two years of like this this laboratory discovery. We have Brett's theory paper and we have Carol and Mike's in, empirical paper. So rather than this knowledge being, you know, jealously guarded and locked behind closed doors, actually the papers are published, they're in the literature, 
And uh, and uh, if we check them now, uh, you know, Brett's paper ends up 20 years later with 60-odd citations. And Mike and Carol's has, I think, a lot more, like 200 and something. Um, so uh, that's a that's a well-cited paper, but it's not like a paper that lit the world on it, fire, right? No, no, like, it is, no, it is not. No, no, that's respectable, but it's um, it's indicative of a, you know, of a influential result, but not something, as you said, hasn't lit the world on fire. So, yeah, nothing's. It's been published. I don't, I don't see what the fuss is, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, the way it's presented, I mean, all papers kind of oversell their findings, right? They, they have to say they're very insightful and that kind of thing. So, like, the paper I read it with Carol and Mike, uh, their paper presents the result as, like, an interesting thing that's important for researchers to know and may have implications. But they're very much, it's not this, fantastic finding that upends everything and like Brett often points out that like the general response to this thing about uh, mouse model models being imperfect is researchers saying they know they already know that and that there were many papers um that you know made this point all already and that mm. and i think that's important because Brett still says yeah but that doesn't matter because this is a very specific problem but my impression is that it's only really him that is so sure of that. Whereas most other people are like, yes, we're, we're aware of these issues. And also things like mice model are not the only models that are used to, to examine drugs reactions. Like lab rats is a term for a reason. And this is only one species. So Brett is like quite clear that this is the main species and this strain is the the one that is used in all of the labs, maybe. But when I watched Carol Grader's Nobel presentation, she had papers with multiple strains, like 10 or 12 different kinds of strains, looking at multiple generations. And it didn't yep. seem that it was all based around this one mouse model from this one lab. And on top of that is the fact that like, before drugs are ever used with humans, they need to go through three stages of clinical trials so like brett sidesteps that by saying well but this is about like over the lifespan and you know clinical trials don't follow people for generations and so the 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 issues might not show up but it it's all very tenuous and relies on like brett basically being correct about it as a and it's not like there isn't massive amount of researchers invested in finding out things about you know drugs and their effects on the body and so on and there there's plenty of nefarious stuff that goes on in pharmaceutical industry but that's that that's the kind of issue for me is like there's real things to be considered about in pharmaceutical yeah. trials but this is more yeah, it, like uh it seems yeah. like a storm and it seems like a storm in a teacup that's mainly reflecting an overblown sense of one's own importance Yes, and that's quite, that sounds mean to say, and I so I want to also say that you know I guess you know I get it. It's understandable for a relatively inexperienced researcher who PhD student who's been deep into it. It's a kind of natural thing to take one's own specific topic overly seriously. So I want to um, say that, but I think largely it reflects yeah just an overblown sense of the importance of all of this. Um, 
Yeah, and I like I agree that it's perfectly normal to get caught up in your own theory, and maybe you know there's there's even the possibility that Brett is right about something that he's seen something that people are overlooking, but it's the lack of consideration that maybe he isn't right. That is the issue. That like the okay, so a certain strain of mice had lab mice had longer telomeres, which was something that Brett expected um, from from his intuitions about the theory. But that doesn't mean from there all his other intuitions apply. And that when people are saying this is this is not that surprising, it's not that big of a deal, it it's not necessarily a suppression or like a, a bad fear reaction to defend the status quo. It could legitimately be that the researchers don't think it is. Because in, in my conversations around this episode with researchers that are involved with cancer research or, um, or doing lab studies with you know, mice and other models, which I'm not, their, their general reaction has been, yeah, like this isn't news. It's, uh, there's, there's papers before Brett's that are talking about similar issues. And I, I think someone sent one to me. When, when I read it from my eyes, it seemed to be saying almost ex- the exact same insight that Brett was saying, you know, nobody had. And he, even if it's not the case, it just doesn't, it would be very unlikely that it's this linchpin that Eric and Brett believe for everything, the pharmaceutical industry, medicine, you know, it, that this is the single linchpin. That yeah, like yeah, I think that's an important point. I mean, this is not just a, it's not just a personal story of ah, oh, this is some stuff that happened to me some years ago. This is like a a key a key incident which illustrates the operation of the distributed idea suppression complex. Yeah, and I guess yes. that's why that's why we need to examine it critically because if it's going to function and this as you said, this linchpin role of demonstrating incontrovertibly the operation of the disc, which is, you know, that's a, that's a big claim and big claims require a lot of evidence behind them. And, you know, as, as we've talked about, this is very tenuous. So you have another clip for us, eh? I, I do where that connection is made explicitly for us. So okay. let me just, uh, let me just tee it up. I mean, I want you to take this seriously. You're just showing a part of what I'm calling the DISC, the Distributed Idea Suppression Complex. We have 50 years of such stories. Yep. And it happens that in our family, three out of four of us created such a story trying to get a PhD. And the idea for me is that every time you have to go into some closed system, like there's a committee meeting or there's a blue ribbon commission or there's a peer review process, or there's a, uh, what do they call them? The panels, um, study groups for grants. That's where the disc lives. We know that it's localized to the things that protect the integrity of science. It's an autoimmune disease where what we have is an ability to stop highly disruptive ideas from getting a hearing in the general population of experts by virtue of the fact that a carefully chosen group of experts can stop publication. There we have it, Matt, the distributed idea suppression complex in a nutshell. Uh, Uh So 
what's your reaction to the this this distributed suppression complex yeah yeah look i mean i think um we almost need to break that down don't we to kind of almost just figure out exactly what is being said there like like so let's before commenting let's let's just try to delineate it just in clear language exactly what uh eric is saying there so I can try. I could. Uh, I guess he's saying that um, the entire scientific system, the system that involves, um, um, uh, you know, um, peer review um, panels or uh, that that uh, decide on grants. What else? What 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 other components of the of of the disc would, would he say are operating there? Well, probably the media and stuff come in as well. But like in this example, he's kind of firmly focused on the institutes of science, like the yeah. Uh, so, so I guess anything the, anything that's institutional gatekeeping of some kind, yeah, would journals, that's a, peer reviews, grant bodies, uh, yeah, hiring, maybe, maybe yeah, hiring, hiring. But three people in the family have uh, have had experience with this suppression. That's right. And as we heard earlier, suppression that robbed them of potential Nobel Prizes. So it's a serious yeah, issue. It is, yeah. So so it's a corrupt system that deliberate is deliberately suppressing disruptive ideas, which are also groundbreaking and innovative and stuff like that, which is if I understand correctly. Goes without saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, so he describes it as an autoimmune disease or like um it, it's a big claim. Well, I think Look, if you if you take it in the positive way, like it's obviously the case that you know science doesn't move exactly with empirical evidence. There's resistance. There's gatekeepers. There's there's enough scientific controversies to fill books about you know people having ideas suppressed and and, and that kind of thing. So you can completely agree that there these kind of things can and do happen, mm. but. It's the degree to which Eric assumes that that's why his idea and Brett's ideas haven't made it. Or it seems to be a default that the, this process is keeping out the best ideas and the revolutionary ideas instead of that it may very well be functioning as a quality control. And mm. while there are individual cases which you know which which show limitations of the system that it's it's like incredibly self-serving to assume that the reason you cannot succeed within the system or the reason you haven't got recognition or your nobel prize is just because it's all biased and people don't recognize it like the other possible explanation is that your idea is not that revolutionary or is not as amazing as you judge it to be yeah yeah so uh, in a similar vein, to try to still man this, I'd be the first one to admit, you know, the academic system and the systems of gatekeeping, which have to exist, obviously. I mean, if, if you're into, if you want to hire someone, you have to have a recruitment panel. Yeah, if if, if you want to have a journal and want to be at least somewhat selective about what you publish, you have to have some mechanism by which to uh, implement some sort of quality control. So obviously, there has to be these structures there if you want to have quality control which is uh yeah pretty pretty important part of the whole system it certainly wouldn't call it perfect um 
there's um, heaps of instances of it working suboptimally. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's a huge misrepresentation to say that it, that it it is primarily or mainly or that there's some, you know, that there's just no evidence to support this claim that it is deliberately suppressing innovative, disruptive ideas. In general, you know, in most fields, you know, like, first of all, this idea is not new, I guess. Like, the, was it Thomas Kuhn with his, um, you know, talked about the... The, the, the sort of sociological aspects with scientific revolutions, you know what I mean? You almost, in, in other words, for, for a field to really change tack, you almost have to wait for the old guard to kind of die, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, <laughs> or, you know, it doesn't sort of, you know. So in other words, you know, researchers, scientists are not these perfectly rational creatures with no ego, which which I'm sure Eric would be the first person to sympathise with, you know. Where, where yes, <laughs> the, he should. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> he, um, I, I think he would, he would certainly note that researchers are like that, but I... I agree that it would be worth applying that insight closer to home yes exactly um so you know it's it's just a it's made up of fallible human beings but the idea that it's like a systematic institutional thing like a conspiracy you know it's a conspiracy theory is a good analogy here because no not only a good analogy i think it's a perfect description because let me let me just play another short clip where eric describes american science and i i think this illustrates further his his view of like how deep the corruption is. Our problem is that the American scientific enterprise headquartered in the National Science Foundation, National Academy of Sciences and our university systems is fraudulent and yeah. it serves to suppress radical new ideas. And there are all our clips that I could play from this single episode where Eric describes the university system as a suppression system for big ideas and and so on. Like you said, there's a whole lot that's wrong with that. But like, I think part of it is you're, you're tempted to get tied up and saying, well, of course, universities do end up having like theoretical grooves that people are into or are associated with specific schools. But I think in some sense, that's been too generous because in the modern era, there's this movement that you may have heard of, Matt, called open science, which the focus on it is to increase the transparency of research and to make research like freely available and the data open to people. And those efforts, the open science movements, are, are kind of not discussed by Eric and Brett, but in large part, they take care of a lot of the things that they're concerned about. For example, this concern about gatekeepers closing things out behind uh, articles behind closed doors. Now it's possible to publish a preprint on preprint servers before they've been reviewed and, and people in the field can, can then see the article and access it. So the notion that the system is completely closed, it's actually changing. And there are efforts underway to make it so that it, there is less reliance on you know who you know and and the traditional systems of of peer review. My kind of argument is just that the problems that Eric and Brett raise, to a certain extent, they're real, but their solutions are just unrealistic and self and and typically extremely personal about their grievances about you know some paper they had that was rejected, and they try to link it to broader processes, but in so doing. They misportray like science as a idea suppression complex or as universities as like things to throttle innovation. And it just it rings 
hollow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, it's a big claim, but what it boils down to is that there's just no evidence really presented to support this claim apart from a personal feeling of grievance that they have been unrecognized by the system. Like that doesn't really cut it in terms of supporting such a huge claim. Uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds. I mean, and, you know, it just doesn't gel with any kind of experience that I've had. Like I've, I've published a lot of research. A lot of it's been kind of mediocre, to be honest, Chris. And I've managed to find some way to publish it. You know, if, if anything, I think the bar is too low. Probably more of my papers should have been rejected, you know. Uh, well, I, look, and Eric has argued that the reason he won't use preprint servers is because you have to supply an academic email address. And if you don't have an academic email address, you have to get a, God, like a recommendation. That's not the right word, but from, from some other researcher. And, and on principle, he refuses to do that. But... But even accepting that logic, it wouldn't make sense that, you know, you couldn't just publish, you can just publish PDFs online now, you know, you just yeah. get a website, just yeah. put, you could, put it up. You could, and you could, you could post it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So if you, I mean, in the case of Brett and Eric, these are both people with like over 100,000 followers uh, now because of cultural war involvement. And so they don't have insubstantial outreach you know for their ideas or that kind of thing so like i i realized that this is them going back in time to complain you know about brett's treatment within the system but the the kind of insurmountable obstacles that they're talking about even if they did exist 20 years ago the situation has changed a lot since then and so they're they're like stuck on this model that that doesn't really apply and that there's obvious solutions to and yet they don't take them mm. and it, yeah it leaves the critique feeling unconvincing because you can find much better people criticizing things about academia criticizing the conservatism the changes and and building new journals building like peer review open peer review system where you can see who the reviewers identities are or you can yeah. see the reviews publicly that like all these systems but i never hear them them discuss them uh, so no it's yeah it's, except it's, it's, just, it's just kind of out of touch i suppose you know like as you say there's there are genuine problems like there are with any system you know like for instance the funding system in australia the research funding system is extremely conservative the sort of running joke is that you kind of you do the research and you know establish this amazing track record which gives the funding agency this huge confidence in that the research is sound um, and then you get the grants, which can fund your justification for the next grant, if you like, to do something sort of different, which is silly, you know. But so, yeah, you know, there's things like that, like conservatism if um, in funding. They're very risk averse uh, a lot of the time. So there's, there's all kinds of complaints one could make. But when you start talking about it being an orchestrated system that is intended to stifle innovation and stop ideas that are disruptive. I mean, that's just getting into conspiracy territory. And in fact, reminds me of other groups that like to criticize academia because they just have some beef with it. And, you know, it made me think of, you know, well, Chris, the sort of um, anti-evolution Christian faction there. And they have a few talking points when it comes to discrediting the the scientific literature on evolution. Um, likewise, the people who don't like climate change, don't want, don't want to believe the evidence on climate change, have a few talking points about why there is so much scientific literature 
showing that climate change is is real. And the what they basically say is that oh, the system's corrupt. All of these researchers know what side their bread is buttered on, and that they are, are falling into line and uh, preaching from, from 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 the hymn book because they know that they'll get rewarded for publishing stuff that supports climate change or evolution or whatever. Yeah, that's that's stuff you would have heard before. So I mean, that's that's conspiratorial nonsense, right? That's not true. <laughs> um, and <Hey. laughs> now I'm not saying that's the motivation of, of Eric or, or, or Brett or anyone, but their motivation is really kind of, um, it's got nothing to do with evolution or, uh, or, um, or, or climate change, obviously, but it's got to do with, I suppose, I guess, bolstering their own credibility and necessity in relation to I, the institutions. Like, I honestly think that, it's it's hard to overstate the case like the more that you pay attention to like Brett and Eric's output how much of their worldview revolves around their personal grievances or their feelings of of being treated unfairly during their PhDs or or by the academic system and it, a good illustration of this is like this episode is specifically about Brett's PhD so of course they cover it but even before this story, on all their episodes, I, I had much more knowledge about Eric's PhD and his circumstances than I think I have of colleagues that I've worked for years because people don't spend that much time talking up their, their past achievements and how revolutionary and everything they are. Because if they are, you don't need to talk them up. They, you know, they speak for themselves. And yeah, so lest we get stuck in the Weinstein wormhole, um, let's let's like at least finish the narrative of where the story goes with Carol. And um, so we've covered Brett's repression by nature and and this external reviewer who may have been Carol and his upset with the paper by Carol and her, her grad student. And what one point that Brett is very upset about is. Ehler not being a fair offer on that paper that by, by Carol's grad student because he sees the whole paper as being based on his idea. Or he also mentions not being in the acknowledgements and how it, it's kind of like swept over, but he suggests that, you know, had he have been in there, he'd have been able to point to it to show that it was related to his idea. And that just struck me as like, insane because when i when i think about you know a situation where say you're at a job interview and you know you're talking to people and say look if you check the acknowledgements on this paper you'll note that this is i am mentioned in there so you know this was my idea and it's very important like Brett seems convinced that, you know, this would make a tangible difference to his career or life. But even having a third offer paper that, you know, is reasonably successful would do very little, I would, I would see. And an acknowledgement would do nothing because, you know, nobody, basically nobody reads acknowledgements. And if somebody brought it up, you would consider them somewhat odd to like you know to mention that yeah yeah i think that's a good example of the kind of points that are made that uh, yeah as you say kind of illustrate um uh, i don't know what it illustrates it's kind of out of touch or something like but i suppose that the people who listen might think that that's a important point or 
or something that matters when, 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 yeah, you and I know that having your name mentioned in the acknowledgement saying, oh, we, we, we acknowledge uh, Chris Kavanagh for helpful discussions about something. I mean, hmm, big shrug, you know, <laughs> that, that doesn't mean yeah. that this is just not important. Yeah. Um, why? Like, I, don't, I don't know why I, I they read, think it's important. Yeah. I read acknowledgements, but I, I, I realize that that's a weird thing that I do, that most people don't do you that. Are, you because are. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I am weird. And I like have this, uh, I also read prefaces in books, prefaces, <laughs> right? Uh, the, so the, these, these are things that usually people ig- ignore as incidental information. And for good reason. <laughs> so, <laughs> for, but yeah, so uh, anyway, stepping away from those papers, what we get to next is that Carol is eventually awarded the Nobel Prize, ostensibly for her 20-year research or 20 or 30-year research career focusing on telomeres and the, the, just a, a whole career of research on the topic of telomeres and telomeres and, and the discovery of the connection between the two. And so Brett watches her... Nobel speech, which I've also watched, and I would say is a very good Nobel speech, but he his reaction is quite impressive. So let let me let Brett uh, speak for himself. What Carol Greider does with her Nobel lecture, right? Nobel lecture being the biggest lecture a scientist will ever give, the lecture that and filmed and filmed is she delivers a paper in which she very oddly has now embraced my entire uh, set of hypotheses about the effect. She has come over from the comparison between the paper of mine that she panned and said didn't make any sense. She is now a total convert to the idea that senescence across the body is being caused by Hayflick limits that are telomere-based. Okay, and... So, the... the the point here is that Carol gives a speech, and from Brett's perspective, it completely demonstrates that you know any criticisms she previously had were bad faith because now she's embracing all of his ideas, all his theoretical model, and she's claiming it as her own insight. Yeah. The crucial point for Brett is that there's no mention of him, as we will hear here, and then uh, I'll, I'll let you respond, Matt, to okay. this. In her presentation, she's got several experiments that I did not know she had run that I had suggested to her. I said, you know, things like, um, Carol, do you have any idea if a cell has many different telomere lengths? Is it the shortest telomere that controls how many reproductions a cell can do? She's run that experiment. Interesting. Lo and behold, it's the shortest telomere. It's a good guess. But anyway, so she goes through this. There's no mention of me. There's no mention of the actual implications of the, uh, the long telomeres for things like science and safety testing and all of that. There we go. Yeah. Okay. So she's mentioning ideas that he had purportedly uh, and also, and also not mentioning stuff that he thinks she should mention. That's it. Yes. So there's a, there's a rather key, there seems to be a bit of a contradiction here that Brett says she's now accepted all his ideas. She's stolen them. She's repackaged them yet. She doesn't seem to agree with his interpretation or what he considers the key point. So it would seem that she doesn't actually agree with his interpretation yeah. according to his own 
description. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, okay, so she's, look, I mean, the, the first thing I've I got to say at the outset is that we only have Brett's view on this, right? I mean, it's just, just him saying that these were his ideas that, that he said to her and then she, she had never had those ideas before and no one else had had these ideas before and, and so on, which is unsupported, right? Um, and I have to keep in mind that a lot of people, particularly people with healthy egos, shall we say, tend to be a little bit expansive, I suppose, in, in, in the credit one takes, you know, it's, it, it's sure. you know, so you have to keep that in mind, I guess. And it's just, it's not a great look, I suppose. It doesn't sound really good to me. But the, the other point I'll make is that, um, I mean, she's getting this award for her career. Yeah, like the, the, the potential overlap, even, the, even given the most charitable interpretation here with uh, Brett's work is a relatively small proportion of her career output uh, would i be right in saying chris yes definitely so i like i said i watched the talk and two things that struck me about it were one that it's very clearly you know a narrative building on her early work during her phd and then from her research lab right up to the present and so the notion that she's repackaging Brett's idea is ludicrous, basically, because you have decades of work being represented, which predates Brett even being, you know, in academia. So, yeah. like you say, that doesn't fit. But even if we give credit for the ideas that he's claiming credit for, when she's presenting all of the individual studies, like most academics, she tries hard to give credit to the other researchers and recognize that there's a team and that there's collaborators and that this is research done by, you know, not just her, but a, a, a broad group of people. And they've done these studies that involve, you know, multiple generations of different species of or different strains of mice models. And, and it's, it's a very impressive presentation of like a vast research endeavor and um, the the paper that like brett was very concerned about features on like one or two slides and and as he says yeah she doesn't emphasize this point about you know the the lab mice having unusual telomeres as being this very important distinction it's 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 a a kind of side note and part of that is because they're talking about i can't remember if it's eight or more different strains that are not just that one that one type and uh and yeah so the counter to their presentation that she doesn't want to give credit i got the distinct impression she does want to give credit to many other people i like i don't think that brett's lying that he perceives it that no. you know he gave her all these ideas and that she she ran the experiments like i i genuinely don't think that's a bad faith argument i think that's entirely his perception yeah and if you're not him, you're not duty bound to accept that framing. And mm. and I think that like anybody with you know an appropriate degree of skepticism should be very skeptical of that claim because of the relative difference between the two. Yeah, I mean, because I guess if you take the if you if you accept what Brett's saying here, then or and the the narrative of the disc, right? How this is part of the idea suppression that. Um, what, sorry, what does the C stand for again? <laughs> the distributed idea suppression complex. Com complex, yep. According to that, she's not acknowledging 
Brett's contribution, um, acknowledging lots of other people's contributions, even though Brett's contribution was the most innovative and groundbreaking and, 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 and so important and so on, because I guess it was too, too innovative, too disruptive, and that, that kind of dis- the, the, the disc represented by her or whatever had kind of have decided that he needs to be suppressed or and not not given due credit um so that's that's one interpretation it you know there's there's another simpler interpretation which is just that maybe brett is overestimating the uh quantum of credit um that is deserved i mean and i say that because it's a very common thing um, it's kind of an occupational hazard for academics to uh, overestimate our own <laughs> importance. <laughs> uh, and um, so we wouldn't be alone in that at all. Yeah, so it's just a bit sad. It's a bit sad, really. To It is. And like, I'm just looking at Carol Greeder's like, Google Scholar page, right? And her, her top publication is from 1990, Telomeres Shortened During Aging of Human Fibroblasts, cited by 6,254. Uh, you go down a bit, 1992, telomere length predicts replicative capacity of human fibroblasts. Uh, telomere shortening and tumor formation by mouse cells lacking telomerase, 1997. Longevity, stress response and cancer and aging telomerase deficient mice, 1999. These are all publications predating any phone call from Brett, right? And they're, they're related to the topic and maybe they don't have the specific point that like Brett thinks is crucial. But again, that relies on his judgment to say, what's the critical thing. And like, I watched that Nobel prize, that speech and I, it, it all made the sense as a coherent research agenda, right? That she had been following for 30 years. It didn't seem like it just came from this one discovery that they made about the the length of telomeres in mice. And mm. indeed, that was that was just one minor part of the whole presentation. But in in Brett's presentation, it's the key point. And maybe he his argument is that like, no, no, that's just the like example of the broader point. But I think there's a big issue with his claim that he is the person who has made these these connections. Because what little I've looked into the literature, I can find papers from a couple of years previously which are discussing similar relationships after Brett's paper has came out and I've followed through some of the reference. I've found papers in recent years which you know, respond to the the points raised in the paper and some are supportive, some are critical, but they, they don't treat it as if it was this major theoretical breakthrough. Just, you know, several people have made this point, including that, 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 like, and, and Brett's paper is there. So mm. it just feels like instead of this discovery that's been suppressed and like kept out of the literature, it just has its place in the research literature as a an interesting point but not one that revolutionizes everything yeah look and that's why carol has the nobel and not brett (laughs) yeah yeah i mean not to put too fine a point on it hey um yeah you know it's funny i feel uncomfortable about this because it does i do feel mean like having to point this stuff out but you know i feel like we do have to point this stuff out because eric and brett have cast serious 
aspersions on Carol's character here and made really big claims. Uh, so yeah, we should, I feel like we need to push back, even though it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. But I think you've probably got some clips there that probably we... No, yeah, I, I, I think I can alleviate some of your guilt, Matt. So on, let me start by kind of making you feel more guilty okay. by playing Eric pointing out that they aren't meaning anything negative by their the things. This is at the start of the episode when they're introducing what they're going to discuss and they make a very important point, which is... The one thing I would say is that if anyone else in the story wants to tell their version of events, it would be an honor to have you on the portal. There are no bad people in this story, in my opinion. There are a lot of bad incentives. And if we're going to actually fix this system, we're going to have to look past the interpersonal. Okay. So that's a very worthy sentiment and nice, right? No bad people. This is all about structural incentives and the way the scientific system is distorted. Mm. Now let me play a clip which is more closer to the period that we're discussing where they're talking about, I believe this is the decision to, to keep things in house when they were talking about this. But anyway, let's, let's have a listen if it's still true that there are no bad people. And we don't know exactly what happened, but there is no world that I know of in which you, you're allowed to hold back that kind of information because in part of what's on the line. Right. So, I mean, th this is not just a question of academic interest. No. Because these mice are used for medical testing purposes. Not even that. It's medical testing, but it's also all of the science relative at least to cancer, senescence, wound healing, all of the science that is stacked right. on these mice right. that is contingent on their function relative to their telomeres yeah. is all compromised. Right. You're letting year after okay. year of this stuff accumulate. It, it, it's malpractice at an incredible level. Mm. Mm. So m malpractice at an incredible level. This is discussing holding publication and keeping things in house. Mm. So I, I don't know uh, in your case, Matt, but like being accused of academic malpractice, which is not only relevant for like academic interest and careers, but which could be related to cancer treatments, aging, and the safety of drugs. It's it's hard to to gel those two points together. That like we're not saying anybody did anything bad, except extreme malpractice <laughs> that may have massive implications for drug safety. Yeah, and look, I mean that tone is pretty much in keeping with the with the theme that we've just covered with terms of the the, the way that Carol has purportedly you know sidelined and stolen ideas from Brett like the Im implicit or explicit throughout the narrative is the idea that she has acted very very badly yeah so yeah you know um hmm. and since this episode has come out so that, although they invite Carol on although I have no idea why she would want to do that and um, like and just to be clear because she's a researcher and they are alleging a whole suite of offenses about a, like a very specific incident and it seems like going on to defend herself on brett or eric's podcast would actually be a mistake on her point because she would just get dragged into these things more but in in any case since that event has happened on several occasions eric has quote retreated Carol, when she's made like some statement about Black Lives Matter, for example, recently, or, or about support for that movement and trying to do better in science or whatever, um, about inclusivity, 
he's quote retweeted her, you know, saying, well, that's an admirable sentiment, but when you want to discuss holding back young researchers, maybe you should come on the portal. And then predictably, all of the followers from a large account will kind of pile on, right, and fill up her mention. So that isn't the kind of thing that you do when you think that, you know, there's the, there's, there's no malice and it's, it's not somebody doing something intentionally. In, in this podcast, when you read the, the Reddits or you read the, the Twitter threads, it's clear that their followers see her as a villain who stole Brett's world revolutionary idea. And, and so I, I guess a point I want to make here, Matt, is that there's this tendency and it, it applies across like a whole lot of contexts, not just, you know, Brett and Eric, where when people are going to attack someone or when they're going to make a controversial point that they, they frame it at the beginning by saying, no, I'm not, I'm not saying this is definitely true or I'm not alleging that everyone here is engaged in this is often referred to as jacking off, right? Just asking questions. Oh, yeah. um, and in this case, and in a lot of other cases, it feels like a, a strategic disclaimer whereby you, your fans or you can point to, look, we never said anybody was doing anything intentionally bad. But then for the rest of the podcast, you can go on and explain just how bad the people are. But you can always point back to that one minute at yeah. the start where you said, nobody here is necessarily bad. Yeah, well, yeah, it does remind me of um, these some more recent episodes of, of this podcast, I think it was, where they say at the beginning that they're not, indulging in conspiracy theorizing here they're they're doing conspiracy hypothesizing hypothesizing yeah so uh you know we're just exploring hypotheses here uh and possibilities and then go on for the rest of the podcast talking about these assertions as if they're cast iron facts yeah uh and yeah you can't it's not like you can issue this card, this disclaimer, and then and then that just absolves you because the people who are listening are taking it as just like just like you said with um, the, the followers basically reading reading the story in terms of Carol, they're reading it like they're saying it, which is they're not paying attention to the disclaimer right at the beginning of the episode. They're reading it as what a terrible person she stole his ideas, she got the Nobel Prize when it really be- should belong to Brett. Um, that's that's what's being said. That's yeah. what's being heard. It's yeah. a te- and I, I want to make clear that like, I think it's a conscious technique that people do because there's a couple of occasions during the episode where Brett goes a bit harsher uh, or harder and then Eric steps in to add a disclaimer. So like, let, me, let me give you an example of that. I think this one is close to the end of the podcast. I want to say that anybody who is misportrayed by this uh, podcast is welcome. We are not claiming uh, to have absolute and universal knowledge. You are more than welcome to correct the story if you have knowledge about this that uh, checks out. Right. So, like in isolation, those that that sounds extremely reasonable. Yeah, right? yeah, very, and, very, and very also, generous. Yes. Yeah, but in the context of a two-hour forty podcast, where you, you know you in, include that towards the end after like thirty minutes. The message that people get when they when they take it away is is oh that these people are very fair, and that the the people that they're criticizing are villains who 
who are unable to defend themselves. And if they don't defend themselves, that just demonstrates that they, they are indeed what they claim. Yeah, I, I think the other dynamic here, which is a little bit familiar, is this tendency of um, uh, either on, online figures or people who are looking to build an online following to kind of pick, to wanting to stir up controversy, as well as there's a, look, I have to say there's a bit of a, <laughs> a large self-aggrandizing element here. But an, another element with the, um, the reaching out, the repeated reaching out to, to, to Carol um, seems to be, you know, we seen, we've seen that before in terms of uh, even people like Alex Jones you know, really trying to pick a fight or, or then, or, yeah. or, or have a fight and then have a very public kind of makeup kind of um, situation. Um, that sort of stuff gets people engaged, doesn't it? Um, yes, yeah. like Alex Jones picking the fight with Joe Rogan, or like this is a this is a kind of tried and tested way to to drive engagement is to you know get into a a controversy or an argument with somebody and to kind of uh drive eyeballs to the ensuing kind of car crash as it happens and like there's there's a part of that which is just the you know dynamic of human interest to watch conflict and or like you know the same way cringe comedy is kind of enjoyable to to watch but but the other side of it is that like if a Nobel Prize winner comes on a podcast to defend themselves against someone's accusations that they stole their yeah. ideas, yeah. of course that will become a massive story. Where yeah, as it, a and also, fans, it also adds a lot of legitimacy, of course, to... to yes, no matter what they said, it yeah. doesn't... It like, you know, it's... Uh, I think Richard Dawkins has kind of made this point with, like, debating creationists or whatever, that, you know, when you it it looks much better on their cv than it does on yours um and the yeah the i i just think that the it doesn't an unwillingness to engage at in and like kind of get into tit for tat you know kind of responses over email sent or who said it it implies that there's there's merit to things or that the this discussion needs to be had and like it's not clear that it does no. because even in the maximal charity version of like Brett's story where like let's say that that Carol didn't give him adequate uh, kind of recognition for his contribution to a paper and where she did uh, get you know the kernel of ideas for experiments from his conversation specifically. Yeah. Then the people who did the experiments, the people who, you know, spent like years kind of writing up papers, hanging around with mice and breeding them. And like, you know, it, it's other researchers and it's the people that are on those papers. It like, I think we kind of covered it earlier, but just having an idea and not having any means to test it or or not not kind of doing empirical work because like it's been 20 years since these events that we're talking about and surely in that time even if brett didn't have access to his own lab he could have collaborated with people who have labs or he could have you know done any number of things carol went on with her research career has continued on since then and and brett went into teaching which is there's absolutely nothing wrong with but it it does suggest that like, you know, 
maybe his destiny was not to be the next Darwin. It was just to be, you know, uh, like a, a, a teacher at a university. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. No, it, no, no, no. I mean, just on the balance of probabilities, when you have someone like Carol who had this illustrious career long before uh, Brett uh, or any a PhD student arrived on the scene and then continued doing a huge amount of work, collaborating with a large number of people, all of whom were involved, um, and which which ultimately um, resulted in Nobel Prize. I mean, in the in the big picture, is the um, the, the contribution of uh, some conversations or believing that you had an idea that was subsequently used. Um, it just doesn't it it just doesn't hold water. Um, unfortunately no so where this leads to is like you know ends up talking about how he tried to get this story out and he can't has contacted journalists but always they do fact checking they're interested in this controversy could all the drug trials not be safe then they do some fact checking and they inevitably pull back right and eric and brett see this as evidence that this is the suppression complex in in action but the other possibility is just that journalists are doing due diligence they're checking out. They don't have the the expertise to assess what somebody claims is mm. true about a complex research topic. And when they reach out to other experts, they tell them their legitimate opinion, which is this isn't this big deal. And no, we know about the problems with mice models. And the people who are left convinced that it is this massive deal is Brett, right? So like, it isn't a suppression complex. It's just a disagreement between himself and the vast majority of other researchers. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's just a, dif- a difference of perception, as you say, like his perception. Uh, and, and as you say, I believe it's in good faith. I, I think he honestly believes it. And it's, as I've said a few times, it's not entirely uncommon for people to have those kinds of perceptions. But um, it's not a perception seemingly held by anyone else who was either associated with the area or or someone like you say journalists who have investigated it and you know this is the problem with ideas like a distributed idea suppression complex which is that they are conspiratorial in the sense that they are self-justifying you know so you you propose this astounding new perspective on things as being suppressed it could be the moon landing it could be you know vaccines or whatever and then there's no real evidence for it. There's no take up. And you can point to the, the system, the, um, it could be the, the New World Order or the DISC or, or whatever, which is suppressing it and preventing this knowledge from coming out, from the evidence from coming out. So what you're left with is just the unsupported uh, assertions of the people who are proposing the theory. But if, you're, if you listen to it and you, if, if you believe what's being said, then you endorse this entire... So in, in, in the same way that believing that NASA faked the moon landing, that if you, if you want to believe that, then you have to also believe in an idea, a huge idea suppression complex that you have to believe also in the mm-hmm. cover-up. Yeah? This huge cover-up is, is necessary to support this opinion you have about a specific thing, which is otherwise unsupported. And I feel like we have the same dynamic here. Uh, in terms of relationship to the disc and yeah i think i have a clip which illustrates that thinking in action one of the last ones so let let hear it from the master they would rather sweep it under the rug i mean imagine you've got all these knockout mice 
right? These knockout mice, there's a major investment in them. It takes a lot of work to no, knock out dude, a particular You've got team. a central, you've got a single point of failure. Right. Whose um, projections are, are tendrils into everything. Right. And you've got how many careers built on papers that are now suspect. This is like an, irre- this is like a centralized irre- uh, irreproducibility crisis. Yes. It's, it's that bad or worse. Okay. And, but- and you know, what happens if let's say somebody hears this podcast yeah. and they check into it and they find out, lo and behold, this story is true. Yeah. Well, now the FDA has a problem. Well, wait, wait, wait a second. Yeah, that, by the way, that was Eric getting to the point to say, oh, hold, hold on. We're not saying that the FDA then issues like a disclaimer, but you, you've got that point, right? Like you move from, oh, there's a, a study and the, it didn't get published easily enough about the telomeres to suddenly all drug trials are undermined and there's, the, as they said, the tendrils get into everything. Right? Mm, yeah. it isn't just a small problem it's everything it's the whole american scientific complex the biomedical complex it's 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 everything and they are very good both brett and eric are very good at presenting this in a way to their audience that, that kind of connects the dots for them that makes it all sound ominous that makes it all sound unreasonable and unfair and if i wasn't in academia lots of the descriptions of what happens would sound very odd to me and would sound like somebody is up to something behind the scenes trying to stop this come out but it's it's really only because of familiarity with peer review and because of experiences with how academia functions that a lot of the nefarious intent that they ascribe just just sounds like you know mundane things your paper gets rejected you get a harsh review it's it's not unusual. It happens whether or not you have like this groundbreaking discovery or just like a mundane paper. Mm, yeah, yeah. There's this, there's this um, trend to see this huge ominous significance in mundane events. Yeah. Um, again, a pretty a pretty standard um, feature of conspiratorial reasoning. Yes. Yeah, and as you say, it's probably more obvious to us because we've just been living it. We know just how commonplace all these little things are, like little tips. Little tips are over over credit, right? Um, so someone sure. um, having an inflated idea of their own contribution—it's as common as anything, you know. Um, so all of these things that are kind of pointed to as very suspicious um, indications of something very big, you know, just don't seem that way to us. But I can appreciate that if you're not into it, it in the area, it, it it might it might seem to make sense. In the same way, so people who are talking about nine eleven will point to Oh, you know, why did they collapse in that exact particular way? That seems very strange, doesn't it? And yeah, if, if and you're it a structural, does. if you're a structural engineer or whatever, it's like no, that's not. <laughs> it's not actually a big deal. But if you're not a structural engineer, like I'm not, you'd be like, well, that's. That it looks it. like a controlled explosion, or yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So this, this I think, this connects in, um, and we should probably get to like wrapping up. Given like, I have no idea how long this episode is, but um, <laughs> the the uh, the whole idea of the portal, and to like another extent, the dark horse podcast is that they're kind of peeling back the curtain from academia to give their audience that are interested in these scientific ideas a kind of insight into that world that they've been denied by the system or you know that if they're not in university or maybe they're not studying those subjects and i want to say that that's like a very appealing 
notion that you're you're being granted insight into high level conversations and that you're being brought along. There's a little clip that that shows both Brett and Eric are saying like, if the audience can keep up with us, this is good. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to talk in the way that we are because we trust our audience to do the research. And that sounds like this. I want to talk about the subjects that you're most associated with, starting with your thesis. And I want to get into the science of it using the portal podcast. If people get left behind, they get left behind. Mm. That's just like one illustration, but there, there's this constant bringing in of people, you know, that discuss high level physics or something. And Eric is Eric often frames as, well, this is how real science happens. But a lot of it feels like it's also a way that makes people feel that they should get it. And that if they, if they kind of can keep up that they're, they're part of, you know, an intellectual elite club that gets it. Yeah. And uh, they're, the university people aren't any better than that. And I think both you and me have the view, Matt, people who go to university, are, they, they aren't granted any like miraculous knowledge or like that makes them superior to other people. That's not what it's about. But, but there is a thing where if you spend years studying a topic, that you inevitably know it better than amateurs. Like there's tons of subjects that I'm completely amateur in and I've got a good grasp of them, but I'm I'm not someone who's dedicated like a career to understanding like physics. Um, and yeah, it's kind of that sort of TED talk feature, you know, where TED, you know, TED talks have become, they started off like a kind of a nice thing, but became more of giving that sort of feeling of truthiness, that 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 feeling of insight, um, in, in like a sales, yeah, pitch. In, in a very easily digestible um, format that sort of gives you that aha feeling, um, which is very appealing, you know. And you know, I think people have started to cotton on to that and realise that it's it's an ersatz kind of understanding. Um, you know, I, I listen to a lot of science podcasts just for fun. You know, in topics I know nothing. You know, I have no training in. Like I, I love space podcasts. I just, just love hearing about quantum mechanics and black holes and neutron stars and, and uh, tachyon, which is not actually a real thing. But anyway, it, it's fun to talk about. And I love how they do it because, because they, um, like you can tell a really good science podcaster because they give someone like me, who's, I, I, may have, I may be a professor in my area, but I'm an idiot when it comes to uh, physics. Um, they they have this knack for giving a, a, a really good basic understanding of what's going on and highlighting the interesting parts. They obviously don't go into, you know, aspects which require the technical training, but you can often give a lot of very good information to a layperson without getting into that really just, you know, mind-bending technical mumbo-jumbo, which every field kind of has. But it, feel, it feels to me that there are other people that kind of do the opposite. You know what I mean? They, they don't, they actually obscure, they talk in a very obscure way. They, they use a lot of big words and make allusions to, to, to technical phrases and stuff without explaining them. And the idea is to convince or to kind of, uh, you know, e either convince the audience that, that the audience is smart and to, and to give them the feeling that they the feeling, but not the reality of being privy to some sort of inside information, or perhaps the intent is more to convince the audience that they are smart, that they are, you know, just this yeah, this this, this oracle or whatever. So it's a very different 
tone. I, the, 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 the science podcasts I really enjoy, they're, they're self-deprecating. They don't use technical mumbo-jumbo. They, they're, they're very casual and it's hard to explain. Just go, you know, anyone listening to this, is go listen to those podcasts and hear the difference is probably what I would say. Yeah, well, I, I think that like this episode is perhaps not as bad as some of the other ones in terms of the like techno babble because uh, maybe partly because of Brett, like they, they, they spend some time to try and break down ideas. But in, in all instances, there, are, there always feels, uh, and it comes through in this episode, but it comes through in other episodes as well, that there's a performative aspect to both of the Weinsteins, which is that if they have a way to get across an idea that illustrates how smart they are, that can make references to obscure theorists or that can invoke technical terms, they will choose that over you know, a simple version that doesn't require referencing obscure 19th century German poets or, or so on. Um, and, and Eric's much worse for this than, than Brett. But like, I think once you recognize that, you start to understand a lot more of the context because I've seen people who have watched episodes where like Brett is discussing something with a theoretical physicist and there's a lot of technical discussion. And I showed this to a physicist and they were like, well, who's this for? Because it's, it's not like general audience, but it's also not technical enough for physicists. And yeah. then, but it feels more like, yes, it's, it's it, in some sense, it's a performance then. And I would also counter in general that that's the way that science is done especially grand scale physics or um, experimental biology, because all of those things now, although there's individual insight, they require these massive teams and labs and stuff. So like the norm is collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Like the advances are not made in a random conversation in a podcast or whatever. Um, yeah. There's exceptions. Uh, well, I mean, maybe not podcast like exceptions, but I mean, there are like random geniuses who overturn uh, or or provide a proof for like a mathematical equation yeah. that was unsolved for decades. But but they're famous for a reason. But uh, but uh, as you're saying, the the question your your friend asked is who's the audience for this? Is the key one? Like it's it's for 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 lay people, it's purely performative because. It's, it's just technical mumbo-jumbo and every field has it. You know, I could start rattling off about statistics mumbo-jumbo, but there's no point me doing that except to another specialist statistician who's literally researching, actively researching the area that I'm working in. Um, to do it to, to an undergraduate or a, or a layperson would be purely performative. There'd be no reason for it. And, and as your physics friend indicated, it's not really the kind of discussion that's that's an actual working research discussion either. So what is it other than performative? I, I, I'm just going to make a out of left field comparison here, but, but, you know, like one of my other, the other one, the other things I don't really like is, is, um, you know, a certain brand of academic writing, which you often see in critical theory and stuff like, um, and these sorts of fields, which are, you know, if, if you're on Twitter and in the cultures, you're probably, aware of this um and when i read an abstract and, and read these papers and i see the the just the elaborate language and the unnecessarily flowery kind of technical terms and it's it's almost indecipherable and i it has the it gives me the same feeling which is what uh, it feels like being deliberately obscure so as to give that 
truthy feeling of 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 academia but without really having any substantial ideas rigor. behind it rigor or substantial ideas behind it. it um yeah so it feels performative to me as well so that's just a left field comparison. well i i think like everybody even if you're not in academia when you have a specialist thing you know say your your specialist thing is like long haul transport or whatever and uh, like when you read people who work in your field or who know it, you 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 get that sense, right? Like you can talk away and you can talk about like the ins and outs, inside or baseball, right? Kind of thing. Most people are familiar with when they meet someone who knows something about the topic enough to appear knowledgeable. But after speaking to them for a while, it's kind of clear, oh, you're somebody who can like talk about the topic, but you're not actually uh, like you're you're saying things which are wrong or like extremely exaggerated or that kind of thing and poser might be a harsh word for it but it's it's certainly the case that like there's there's academics where people you performatively display skills or opinions on topics and other people like go along with it when they're in the room with them. But then as soon as they leave the room, they're like, what the hell are we talking about? <laughs> actually, and, actually know, Chris, I've got a funny example there, which is just before I joined my university, there was a, a statistician. They, they, it's a relatively small um, place. And they, they had one specialist statistician who they hired uh, who, who was going to be their statistics guru and, and do all that stuff for them. And, and there, was, there was very few other people in the, in the institution who really had much you know, background in, in statistics. And uh, after a while, they started to sense that just something was wrong because the stuff that the, this guy would always talk <laughs> very quickly and using a whole bunch of technical jargon and people would kind of just get baffled with it and go, oh, okay. And, and then he'd go off and do something and give it to them. And after a while, they'd be, even though they didn't have a great deal of statistical knowledge, they kind of realized that a lot of the stuff he was producing just didn't add up. And when I arrived, they, they asked me to sort of have a chat with him and check out some things that he did. And, and I, I had to tell him that, that, that it turns out this guy is just a complete fraud. He, he, had, he had no, he had, I don't know where he got his qualifications from, some, some obscure place. They, I think they, a good statistician is hard to hire, basically. I think they were, they were having trouble and hired this guy. And he was a complete fraud. And he got by for two or three years, uh, essentially just baffling people with bullshit. It was... Right, Hilarious. yeah, like it's, uh, and academics are not uh, immune to it in in any way, shape, or form, un- unless it's you know in their area of expertise. That's just a point I would make is that you know Eric and, Wett and Brett are also saying that you know people should be skeptical of things, and I agree with them. I just think that they should extend that to the claims that they make as well as the institutions and the academics that, you know, they vilify. So uh, I was thinking that to to finish off, there's a very short clip, which which sort of illustrates this point. It's a bit different, but it, I think it's like maybe in a nice note to, to kind of wrap up on. Uh, so when people use analogies, they usually use them to make a complex idea simpler <laughs> and mm-hmm. and there was an ev- there was a small moment in this episode where Brett, uh, or eric attempts to translate a concept that 
Brett is describing into computer programming terms, making an analogy between cells and computers. And people do that all the time. But like in this case, as we'll see, the analogy ends up like mixed. And I couldn't help getting the feeling that a lot of it was just to insert computer jargon rather than to make it more clear. So uh, let me just play this for you. This is terrifying. What you're saying to me is, is that if I'm com comprised of, let's say, 30 trillion cells, and I view them as each, let's say, subroutines, any subroutine that is not denucleated. So you have it, denucleated subroutines, <laughs> and, and the analogy continues. It just, it would be like me starting to talk about, well, Matt, the like phylogenetic origin for conspiracy theories is, it's related to the Bayesian probabilities that people attach to statements. And we really should consider multivariate solutions to them as opposed to, you know, yeah. like it's yeah. easy to do. Yeah. And it may, maybe it makes you sound smart if you say it with enough confidence, but it's, <laughs> it's also completely unnecessary. Um, yeah, yeah. So, the, the, yeah. Um, the point of a metaphor is usually to provide a simpler, more, uh, more easily understandable version of the complicated thing you're referring to rather than inserting a more complicated thing within the other more complicated. I, I mean, so it does, it does feel performative. Yeah. <laughs> In this case, it even ends up as a hybrid analogy because we've got denucleated subroutines, sub which is like a biological <laughs> computer program. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't seem like it achieved what it was supposed to do, but um, it's picking on an example, but I don't think it's known representative of the general output. No, I do, um, I do recall rather similar things at other points. Yeah. Well, well, listen, Matt, so we've spent God knows how many hours on this. <laughs> and, um, and I'm sure that people may notice that the, the, there are moments during this when the, the tone it dramatically shifts, almost as if there was a period of time between different segments. But Hopefully we can get things, you know, patched together into a coherent whole. But to finish off, would it make sense for us just to offer our closing opinions on this big yeah. picture or yeah. small picture, whatever you like? Yeah, sure. I think so. Look, I, so I guess, okay, so the big picture here is that this, this podcast was about a, it was a bit unusual because it's about a personal narrative. But it's kind of crucial in a way because this this personal narrative of of I don't know how to put it um, grievance or unjust dealing with is uh, I guess cited as as a key uh, personal example of how the disc, um, which is which is an idea that's really important to Eric I think comes up again and again in the future um, acts to really you know compromise and and corrupt the entire system of knowledge making in various research inst institutes and academic institutions around the world so um so that was the that was the podcast and so i guess my big picture evaluation of this is that i mean first of all that's a, a huge claim and as we said it sounds pretty goddamn conspiratorial and doesn't gel at all <laughs> with any of my experience um, if something like that was really going on, we'd expect to be seeing a huge amount of it. <laughs> we'd, we'd expect to see more smoke, essentially, rather than these rather idiosyncratic personal stories, which I think we tried to be 
sympathetic and as we've emphasized i think we you know we we want you know believe that um brett is narrating this story in good faith and eric is not surprisingly you know batting for his brother which is nice but as i said my evaluation of it is that it it really says more about their perceptions of things more than anything else um the story doesn't add up in multiple ways so um yeah, I'm afraid it's kind of, um, my evaluation is it's kind of a nothing burger in a way. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I like I, in many respects, I, I feel the same storm in a teacup. It might be the way I choose to describe it. The thing that I w- would strongly emphasize alongside your point that there's a lot of parallels between what Eric and Brett are advancing and standard you know, conspiracy theories about the Illuminati and the kind of tendrils spanning through the scientific enterprises and the media to control and keep down, you know, maverick voices. Like there's there's so much of that, the parallels, things that I listen to, you know, on Alex Jones week in and week out. But, but as, as well um, as that more, more conventional stuff, like I said, on denying climate change or religious people denying sure, evolution, sure. They, they want to believe X, all right? Basically all of, all of, um, academia and science doesn't think the same. Therefore, they set about w- with their theories of, of of how the whole institutions are corrupt. You know. Um, yeah, and um, I, I think the crucial distinction there is that not only the the reason that science doesn't think that is because there's a mass of evidence which supports the view that it isn't right like because when you get into like critical theory stuff and and like arts and humanities of course there's always debates and there can be you know various criticisms about the orthodoxies but when it's a scientific topic like global warming or that kind of thing isn't like there's no debates around data but it is like there's a massive, overwhelming amount of evidence in favor of uh, climate change and global warming that's happening. And the same thing for, you know, evolution is occurring or uh, any number of well-supported scientific theories. So, yeah. Um, but but set aside the connection to conspiracy theories sure. and uh, those parallels. And the, the other point that I want to emphasize is that this episode, which is, you know, presented as one of the defining moments of science that never was, and which is a, a great injustice that needs hours to focus on and which which many people listen to and were outraged by, ultimately amounts to somebody doing research, getting a paper rejected in one journal and then accepted in their next journal for a solicited submission. Researchers citing it over the next 20 years and the researcher involved not publishing anything else on the theory while the field continues to move on. And so as like grand suppression goes, it was a paper published by a PhD student that they didn't follow up on. And that that really seems to be it. So, you know, I like I said, in some respect, I feel bad to kind of say that, you know, Brett has clearly focused on this for 20 years um, and and it's a linchpin in kind of Eric's model, albeit that Eric's model extends to like, you know, much wider than the Brett case. But Brett, Brett is an illustrative example of it. And it just feels like they, that this, this event isn't that 
significant for science. It might be significant for Brett and the path that his career took, but it it doesn't seem to be have these you know massive implications that he believes mm. and yeah and yeah and that's yeah. like tragic in a way yeah, like, yeah and, 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 and it would be very hard to hear but i i think that people too readily assume that the option is he's lying so you're saying he's lying or that you know all the stuff they're saying is wrong it's no no that's not the point he's telling it from his perspective where it makes complete sense that he would see things that way, albeit, you know, it's self-aggrandizing and that, but it doesn't have to be that he's lying. He no. could be telling things completely honestly and it still not be this grand controversy. And yeah. and yeah, that's that's my takeaways. Yeah, yeah. I guess my other takeaway, I agree completely. Um, and, and I guess my final comment is that, uh, yeah, it's interesting how, like if you don't actually stop and think about it and actually tease it apart, how, and you just kind of, I guess go with the flow. Um, both Eric and Brett um, speak extraordinarily well, like far better than you and I, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, they they have lovely voices. They sound extremely erudite, um, and they, they just have an air of gravitas and thoughtfulness in their in their manner, which you know is very easy and kind of seductive. I guess it's easy to sort of go along with that and and sort of nod your head because it all everything connects and all the puzzle pieces fit together if if you kind of accept the premises. Um, so yeah, I guess my other reflection is that they're um, extraordinarily good at this. Uh, they have they um, <laughs> are, are very convincing people, and I understand. Well, yeah, yeah. In my case, the thing is that I listen to them at times two speed as I listen to all podcasts. So when I actually hear them speak at normal levels of speed, they sound like they're they've been drugged up, and you know <laughs> that, that like something has gone wrong. So the yeah, I can't listen to people speak normally uh, anymore. <laughs> that's, a, that's like a problem of my podcast consumption. So yeah, but but they're definitely much more. They speak with much more clarity than than you or I do. <laughs> so that's that's definitely true. Uh, oh well, well this was fun to uh, deconstruct, uh, <laughs> decompose, sure. uh, analyze to bits. So, yeah. So let's say that for anyone that may have struggled to the end of this, let yeah, us just of, say that. Both of you. This, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mom. And that, <laughs> but the, but the, uh, this is our first crack at this. And maybe we bit off more than we could chew with choosing this episode to start with. But, um, but we can do yeah, better. The, we can do better. <laughs> We promise. Uh, yeah, yeah. Please just give us a chance. But um, <laughs> yeah, like if if you like this or like portions of it, you know, the probably not all episodes will be this incredibly long, and we'll we'll be covering other people than the Weinstein. So uh, so yeah, hopefully you enjoyed, and we we did over the course of many weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep, it was fun. It was great. I suggest we both get a beer now, Chris. We should. <laughs> That's right, a virtual beer, a virtual beer. Yeah. So I, I guess maybe here we'll, we'll draw things to close. I would say, you know, here's the Twitter and here's the thing, but we don't have any of that. Don't have any of that. We don't even have a catchy kind of wrap up thing. So um, let's just say thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right. <laughs>